Welcome to another episode of Growing Up Christian. I'm Casey. I'm Sam. I'm Jeremiah. And uh, I wanted to start this episode off by first sharing a story from my week last week. Um, do you ever do something like dumb and immediately, like before it's even like totally played out, like immediately in your brain, you're like, why are you like this? Like, yeah. why are you this <laughs> stupid? So I was, uh, I was doing some training with one of my salesmen at a, at a car dealership and, uh, we're in the service department and we were demonstrating like one of our things that we sell. Right. So, uh, it's a busy day in there. We got to work fast and I'm trying to like talk through everything that I'm doing as I'm doing it. And I, I just got a little ahead of myself. So I've got all this stuff hooked up in the front seat of the car, right? It's, this is one of the service advisors vehicles. It's a, it's a Jeep. And, um, the next step in the process is you got to start the car. Well, it's a manual transmission and I don't drive a manual very often. I see you smirking. You already know. Like, don't skip ahead. Okay. Okay. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> but, uh, I like, uh, it's, it's kind of jacked up too. So like it's tall to get in there and I am like trying to start, I go to, I turn the key and nothing happens. Right. And I'm like, Oh, manual. So I had a bunch of stuff in the front seat, so I couldn't like sit in the car to start it. So I like wiggle my fat little thigh over the side of the, uh, floorboard and I stuff it in there to get to the, to the clutch pedal. And as I'm doing that, the guy that I was working with goes, hey, you you might want to, you know, and I'm just like working fast, not really paying attention. I push down on the clutch, crank it over. It starts not realizing it was in gear. I remove my foot from the clutch and it immediately just goes whoosh <laughs> and like smashed a big metal table up against the wall, just like bam smashed this thing up against the wall, <laughs> messed up the whole front end of this poor guy's Jeep, who was like oh nice God. enough to let us use it for the demo. And That's the last time he ever lets you use one of his cars for a demo. Yeah, well, it kind of serves him right, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> you were just trying to make a point. You're like, this is what happens when you let people use your stuff. I'm teaching you a lesson. Very look valuable at, one. Right look now. at this guy. Does this guy look like he knows what he's talking about? Yeah, but... <laughs> I mean, yeah, so. he's the CEO's son. I mean, we let Tommy Boy get behind the wheel, and <laughs> Tommy Boy did what Tommy Boy does. It's like when he's sitting in the office playing with the cars on the guy's desk. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yep. with real cars. It's like actual Tommy Boy. But uh, yeah, so I smashed the crap out of this poor guy's car, um, and like immediately, there's a crowd of technicians and other people who work there just like standing around staring at this jeep smashed all up against the wall a pile of wreckage yeah and i just like it was like as it was lunging i was just thinking to myself like you know how this works like what do you, you know what this <laughs> like that you have to make sure it's not in gear like but it was too late so i just apologized profusely like to the crowd and then to the individual then to the manager then to the owner and <laughs> you um, thankfully they have you know company insurance because it was like seventy two hundred dollars did you make the sale though yeah i guess <laughs> i gotta make a bunch more now 
Now, was it, uh, was it a, uh, a Wrangler or like a Gladiator? What type of Jeep was it? It was like a, it was a Wrangler and it was like a special edition one. It was like something like maybe it might have been one of those like Willys ones, you know, okay. that they came out with in the past few years. You know, it's got a bunch of uh, one off unusual parts on it that Great. are yeah. pretty hard <laughs> to locate. Uh, I, I, that's what I was worried about was like, you said it was a manual and it was a Jeep, uh, because they might have like a crawler first gear or something where it actually, if you start it, you might be able to like your foot, not being on the clutch. If you popped it, it might be able to start on a like drive on its own until it hits something without you being in it. Because like, uh, the first gear is low enough that like it overcomes the torque pretty easily. It sure felt like that was the case. Yes, <laughs> it traveled a little ways. Did it start? Did it stall immediately, or no? Was it going? No, it made its way to the wall. I mean, oh, there wasn't yeah, a lot so of that room was probably there. A crawler, okay, yeah, because like your average normal car that's a stick, it probably as soon as you popped your foot off the clutch, it would just stall. So it would jerk forward, but then it would have been cut off. But a car that's made for off-roading has a really low, like a crawler granny first gear where it can like idle along at four miles an hour or something. Yeah, I think that's what I was dealing with. <laughs> What's crazy yeah, is yeah. it like, okay, it's it's funny because it was dumb and nobody was standing in front of this thing. Yeah, dude, right? But Literally, the, okay, so like someone over. Right. There's there was an actual situation in Michigan, like in one of our old the stores that I used to call on up there. Uh, I think it was last year. It might've been the year before, but same exact thing happened. Jeep Wrangler popped the clutch and there was a guy standing in front of it and it killed him. Oh Mm. fuck. Like literally just smashed him. I kept thinking of that video that Tom Segura always plays for. Yeah. yeah, (laughs) Who gets like completely pinned against the wall. The horrible or hilarious segment. I've actually haven't seen that video. uh, Even though I've heard it probably a thousand times at this point it looks remarkably familiar now if if you you feel any better casey i'll give you a similar dumb story so at least you can feel like a tiny bit better uh on the way back from the beach trip that i took like a month and a half ago two months ago um we had i was driving my f-150 back completely full of vacation stuff like the bed all the way up to the cap towing an 18 foot open bed trailer with our RAV4 on it, with a kayak, a surfboard, bicycles, like this thing was loaded down. Like we put everything we could in the truck and trailer for the purposes of like the other vehicles being, you know, not having a lot in them. And uh, at one point we needed to pull over because we had two dogs in the back seat. It was me and my father-in-law driving this car and we had our two, uh, our dog and their dog in the back seat and their dog needed to go to the bathroom. It was just getting really antsy and whatever. So we're in the outer banks. I pull over in like one of their pull-off zones and he hops out and grabs the dog who just trying to get her out of the car before she starts going to the bathroom everywhere. And, uh, you know, and I saw something like flapping a bit on the trailer. So like, we're all, you know, kind of like high, high adrenaline at the moment. And so I hopped out and ran back to look and I turned and the trailer's just creeping forward. And I'm like, I don't oh, no. park. I just stopped <laughs> and got out and I'm sprinting back towards the, Oh front. my God. And I'm like, I'm not, and I had that same thought of like, I'm not going to be the guy who's on video watching like this truck drive into the ocean or whatever like i'm not gonna be that guy and uh i I, it moved maybe a foot by the time i got back to it like it it was really not that bad and it turns out i had pushed the emergency brake on i just hadn't put it in park so it was just creeping its way forward a little bit against the brake 
But well, as soon as I took that off, I was like, man, I don't think I've ever messed that up in my entire life until now. And I was like, <laughs> what? It was the same thought you're talking about. Like, I'm not that stupid. Like, I'm better than that. Like, I'll make a mistake or something, but like, I'm not get out of your car without putting it in park. <laughs> Just that internal dialogue um, of like, I thought better of you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that makes two of us on the podcast that have done the same exact thing, Jeremiah. So. When I, I gashed my leg open uh, like a month and a half ago, I sent you guys the picture, right? Yeah. 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 When I gashed it open, I did gnar. have the thought before I started doing it. I was like, man, I wonder if I should be wearing like safety equipment. And and then I just like wham into the sink. And then I felt the pain and I looked down. And I was like, yeah, I don't know what I thought was going to happen. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, at least just don't wear shorts next time. Yeah. Like, you know, it's just a general pair of jeans. Pants, or maybe way. don't open the cabinet specifically to open up a pathway from the thing you're hitting with a sledgehammer down to your legs. Yeah. <laughs> At least, at least you'd have a mortal wound full of like denim shrapnel. Yeah, I, I have a chance, you know. <laughs> Something for the blood to coagulate with. <laughs> it's like paper mache. Hey, I'll have you know, the feeling is starting to come back in that area. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure there was a little bit of nerve damage. There is about an inch below it. It was just dead for like. Well, and it grows back. I think nerves grow like a millimeter a month or something. So it's going to be a while, but like I'm very slowly starting to get it back. Oh, interesting. I didn't even realize I never gave any consideration to what nerve recovery uh, would look like, but a millimeter a month, huh? Well, and there's no guarantee they're going to grow back and completely rejoin either. Like they might, I, I don't know enough about nerves. So any doctors listening, please correct me. But like they might just grow back from other places or whatever yeah. and fill it in. But it's I, they're not going to probably grow through the scar area. No, I have, I have a good size scar on my arm from when I broke it when I was a kid. And there's like very little feeling in that general yeah. area. But fortunately, it's on my shin. I don't need feeling on my shin. Like, no, actually, not... I would prefer less feeling on my shin. <laughs> because when you bump into things and you hit your shin, that is one of the most aggravating feelings of all time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Every time I see a video of somebody like like they're walking behind their truck and they just like shin kick their hitch. Mm -hmm. Oh man. It's, it's hard to watch. Like you can watch terrible things and not really like feel anything. But for some reason, like that one in particular, I see it and I'm just like, Oh, I feel sick. <laughs> the more relatable the pain, the harder it is to watch when it's like, it's like, if it's, Something really egregious is disconnected from your personal experience. So you're right, just it's like, so bad. Oh. Like, oh, it's a gunshot. Obviously, that's terrible. Not like you bent your pinky nail back. 50 yeah. Percent, where you're like, oh, that's fate worse than death. Like, or when you just stub your toe at, like in the middle of the night, walking down the hall and you mm -hmm. have the lights. Oh, my God. Stubbing your toe, hitting your shins. Uh, I feel like there's another one that's like, really gets me going like you get that it's not like the, it's the pain but you also get that instant feeling of like anger like you miss a step how about if you miss a step coming down the stairs oh yeah that one is just a little more surprising <laughs> oh, yeah. if you fall oh yeah that, that is one of the feelings though when you fall and you hit your tailbone and it sends that shock oh, up your body and you're just like you almost feel it in your gut a bit you're like is this but, the time that i'm paralyzed every and as you get older you're like, it increases the chances yeah you get a little closer every time <laughs> That's why, like skateboarding <laughs> videos, uh, you can, like watching people really take a tumble is like, oh wow, that was wild. But when you watch them just like catch a rail between the legs, you just, oh, that's another one it, of those things. Like I know I, I would never clench. have been amazing at that. I like riding my skateboard around when I was a kid, and I could like do a small ollie, and that was about in a small manual, and that was about the extent of like anything I could ever do. 
but watching kids just wipe it out and stuff, I'm like, you know what? I'm too risk averse. I never would have made it. Like no. I, I would have had to have so much padding on to even try that, like to drop in on a tall half pipe. Are you kidding me? Absolutely not. Yeah. yeah. I never got past, past the introductory phase of like figuring out how anybody even stayed on them or kept them moving. <laughs> all I ever had was like a Ninja Turtle skateboard that had the square back end on it and the big rubber The old pad. banana board. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's what they're called. <laughs> um, I've got a, a problem coming up this weekend. Could use your gentleman's help with. So okay. a buddy of mine is going to the When We Were Young Music Festival in Vegas. Oh, nice. And uh, I am not going to the music festival because I didn't buy tickets when he did. And also, I don't really like music festivals. That's a different topic. But like, it's going to be hot. They allow you to bring in like one water bottle and you can't have anything in your pockets. And there's going to be a, a tent. 50,000 people. I don't know how many, like I'll be checking all of my boxes for like, I would pay full price VIP ticket price to stream it from home. And I would have a fantastic time, but that's not the problem. I'm going with him because his wife did not want to go with him to an outdoor music festival for all the reasons I just explained. Uh, and then afterwards we're going to go to Utah and go to Zion national park and do some hiking and whatever. That part will be fun. Amazing. But that means that I'm going to be in Vegas for an entire day after I drop him off at the concert and I'm going to have to entertain myself. <laughs> and I was like, what type of stuff is there to do in Vegas? And I don't like almost everything there is to do in Vegas. Like I'm not going to a casino and going gambling. I could not possibly care less. And I'm like, maybe I'm going to a magic show. There's a lot of magic shows. There's a, there's like 30 different Cirque du Soleil's. There's no good concerts that day because they're all, you know, the festival is drawing all the stuff. Like, I don't know what, I literally don't know what I'm going to do. Go to a, ma- I, there's got to be some like resident, Someone like who's teller resident, or David Conson or something. I feel I like the idea of you sitting in a in like some dopey Vegas comedian's puppet show alone, <laughs> drinking a thirty two dollar Long Island iced tea that tastes like uh, you know Arizona is <laughs> so sad. <laughs> Well, that's the thing. I would never go to one of those places because I wouldn't like any place with a, a minimum drink thing. I'm like, oh yeah, I'm just not going to that. <laughs> that's dumb. That's a waste. Yeah, <laughs> I've never it's not usually Vegas. required. It's just like one of those things where it's like, well, we have these bottles of water for forty dollars, or I don't know, you can die in the seat. <laughs> oh yeah, any place that wouldn't let me bring my own water bottle in, I'm already like, I'm out. This is not the place for me. <laughs> I don't know how that's still a thing. Like water is like, isn't that a human right? That's that's how country? I feel about it. I'm like, you can't do this to me. I have the right to drink water. They're uh, like, yeah, you can drink it out of the tap. I mean, they have to give it to you from the tap, but do you want Vegas tap water? Probably and not. I was, I was making jokes about like the terrible things I don't want to do in Vegas. And I had to explain to my wife that there are actually strip clubs with buffets and just the idea. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't planning on going to either. Just that sounds like something you but should. I made do. a joke about it, and she just like gave me a look, like, "Oh, that's such a stupid thing." I was like, "No, no, that's a real thing that people do. <laughs> like, not people that I want to associate with, but it's a thing." I feel like, like it should only be like cylindrical foods. <laughs> it should all be like hot dogs, Twinkies, corn dog, mostly just dogs, I guess. The list grows pretty short after you rule out dogs. Yeah, there's a, there's a sad little subway in the corner doing five dollar foot longs. <laughs> yeah, right now I'm I, thinking maybe like a magic show and like a restaurant, and that's it. I I haven't thought. Yeah, like, do a, find a cool restaurant, have lunch alone, or I would go to a magic show, dude. I, if I had a whole day in a city by myself, I would I would probably walk ten miles. I would just keep 
walking. I'd be interested to see and what's around. And then I'd probably just hop into a bar that seemed cool and grab a drink, go online and see what restaurant had a good lunch menu. And then like try something cool. I don't know, man. I feel like that's just like, that's a wing it kind of day. And I think Vegas is a wing it city. I know there's like, I don't know, not from personal experience, but the old strip and the new strip, I guess. And I don't know, I guess they had had different types of attractions. I think the old strip strip has all been redone. So it's not that interesting anymore. I mean, it's it's fine. It's, it's just all stuff that you want to do with like your buddy. Like once your buddy gets out of the concert or whatever, you go walk around and just look at people behaving so. like beasts, you know? Well, yeah. Normally I am like a wing it person, but it would like when we go on vacation, me and my wife, we, we make some plans, but we love just let's show up in a town. Let's find somewhere cool to eat. Let's go drive around and see, Oh, there's a cool, there's a museum. Let's go to the museum. Like we've had some of our best vacations, very loosely planning and then doing that. I yeah. feel like with Vegas, I know enough already like, I don't think I need to discover the real Vegas, if you know what I mean. Like, I don't I think, don't think there's hidden gems where you're like this whole, right. no- I mean, there probably is if you're a resident or something like that, but like all the, all the good restaurants in Vegas, I've, I've spent a lot of time there because of like trade shows and work things and whatnot. And like, there's tons of good restaurants and stuff there, but like most of it, you want to leave the strip. Yeah. You go off and the strip, there's like good sushi places and just about anything. Dude, you should just rent a car and like go out to like Red Rocks or something out there. There's dude, you leave the city limits of Vegas and there's nothing. I mean, it's a wasteland for, you know, hundreds of miles in any direction, which I kind of prefer to the strip. Same. Same. We committed <laughs> to we've gotten the cheapest rental car available uh for while we're in Vegas. It's a Nissan Versa from oh, hell yeah. car rental. And that's so when we drive to Zion, we're, we've got a Corvette rented. Um, and we're really excited about that. But to balance it out, we're like, what's the worst vehicle we can rent while we're in Vegas? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is great because the Nissan Versa, I feel I'll feel nothing for it. Like, I'll drive that thing over curbs. It's going to get a mixture of like water and regular gas. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you get the, you're, you're drinking, drinking out of the tap, tap buddy. <laughs> Mr. Versa. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, it'll be fun. If nothing else, you just like put your earbuds in, put on something really, uh, you know, bleak. Like it's like Vegas is a good place to like put in headphones and just walk around listening to Acacia Strain and judge people. There you, you go. Know? I, I like the idea of driving far away from the strip. I just want to be close enough that like if he needs something, I could get, you know, I don't know. I just feel like slightly protective because – it turns into like a Woodstock '99 situation, and he's like mud bogging in human sewage. Yeah, something like that. But, <laughs> but yeah, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not looking forward to that. I am looking forward to going to Zion. I think that'll be great. I think it's the most boring environment to rent a Corvette for because it's going to be just like sit on the highway at 80 miles an hour. But yeah, it'll be comfortable. It'll it's, be fun. It'll be fun. Zion's amazing. And there's I'm like, excited for that. Yeah. You can go through the park, but then like if you take some of the back roads that sort of weave up around the park, it's very similar and it's empty, which is awesome. So you'll, you're going to have a good time. All right. I say we move into the meat of this conversation now. All right. It's We're time to pivot us. It's time to get into it. So last week we had Jeremy Courtney on to share about his experience. Uh, with everything that went down with preemptive love coalition and him being him and his wife being removed 
uh, from the company. They were both founders. They they were both the founders of the company, and uh, he was the CEO, and she was the I think it was a CPO was her title. Um, what CPO is? Uh, what's that one? Chief. I don't know. Okay, no uh, one knows CPO. That? All right, yeah. I just saw the acronym. Certified so pre-owned. Um, <laughs> chief procurement officer okay. chief procurement officer that makes way more sense all right yeah uh, uh and when we did the introduction we kept a neutral fairly neutral standpoint i think i don't really know um i actually feel like after the fact it came out a little more like rote and a little bit like, well, you guys decide. I don't know. I didn't necessarily love the way that it came out personally, but we just rolled with it. And, but what we didn't want to do was set up the interview with our opinions of it because Jeremy had yet to speak on this issue. Uh, this was, we were lucky enough to, uh, for him to, for us to be the first place that he had that conversation. And it, it's, he's in a weird spot having that conversation, right? Because he's the one who had former employees write to the board about regarding problems with his leadership or the problems that they perceived there to be. So immediately he's being under that kind of fire to, to try to go out and be like, to smooth that over yourself. Usually when someone has an accusation of any sort brought against them, it doesn't really look good. Uh, to immediately go on the defensive. So Jeremy just kept very quiet. He worked with the board. Uh, they worked together to, and agreed on the process by which they would go through finding out uh, how people felt and what they needed to do as an organization to be better uh, and where that would take them. So there was, uh, I'm trying to think of where to maybe start this off with. But anyway, we I, going back to the intro that we did for it, it's like we wanted to keep it neutral because this is a we wanted uh, people have strong feelings about this uh about what happened was it just was it not should have should it have played out differently um and you know as people who were supporters of the organization there was a lot of people who felt like there wasn't as much clarity or transparency about what happened it was kind of frustrating for people who had been supportive of the organization over the years like myself and we wanted people to walk into the interview and be able to, to think that they were getting just that inter interview and oh God, and interview. Uh, if, you know, let him speak for out, himself. Yeah. If we came out swinging with our opinions on it at the top, I didn't, we didn't want to dissuade anybody uh, from, from checking it out and hearing how it all happened. So, uh, but we do have a lot of thoughts and opinions on it uh, since, since talking to Jeremy, uh, we've thought about it a little bit more. Uh, before talking to Jeremy, we read a lot of things written by people who uh, were really the ones who lit this fire to begin with. So I, we, we wanted to just take this, the remainder of this episode, to kind of go over our thoughts on it and what how we perceive this to have happened and whether or not we think it should have happened the way that it did. So, Jeremiah, I'm going to kick it to you actually because you you were not part of the conversation we had with Jer uh with jeremy you were you listened to it this past week so i don't know if you i i didn't prep you to come with sure. any thoughts so i did just put you on the spot right now but <laughs> no that's fine um 
I, and I had never heard of preemptive love or him or the controversy or any, like this was literally my first intro into all of this was the podcast episode. Well, you guys telling me to listen to the podcast episode so we could talk about it. Um, but yeah, so I was going in completely cold to all of it. And it's always hard when you're hearing somebody like, I love long form podcasts, but when you're hearing someone tell their side of the story in long form, like, I think there always is some natural skepticism that comes in of, um, do you assume that there must be other sides to this or more information, right? Like you want to be a little bit skeptical. I thought as a person, he seemed very compelling. Um, you know, the, his story of how they ended up in their position that they were in, I thought felt very like believable. I, you know, I, I didn't resonate with me from any like directly relevant life experience. Um, I did work at a, not a missions organization, but uh, an organization that works um, in other countries with very disadvantaged people in potentially dangerous situations. I was never in any dangerous situations. I worked in North American support office, but like, I, I actually have some perspective as we get farther into this of my take on some of the leadership things, because I went through some similar stuff at where I worked. Like a lot of the leadership things people are talking about. I saw where I worked. I was very low man on the totem pole, but, uh, so I think that's going to be interesting to talk about when I get into that. Cause I'm curious, um, yeah. what, what y'all will think of some of that too, but no, I mean, I, <laughs> I enjoyed it. It seemed most of all like a really sad story of somebody feeling like their life's work got upended for not important enough reasons, if that makes sense. Like if you, if you go up against somebody big and you get struck down and it doesn't work out for that, like at least you can say like we fought the good fight, feeling like you got booted over like mishandled internal process investigation stuff. Like it feels like that's so petty in the scope of what they were trying to do as an organization. It feels like that's the way somebody loses their like Sparrows franchise or something. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, like it, it just, it, it felt like it was two radically <laughs> different stories, you know, kind of going on. And so whether he's all in the right or all in the wrong, and probably neither of those is completely true. Right. That I, I can't imagine what a frustrating, like heartbreaking way, it is for that to be how that story ends and all of that work over so long and to end in that way. And the people mm-hmm. who lit some of those fires, not that they don't have their own trauma to work through or whatever. Like I don't you know, know any of them, so I can't possibly weigh in on that, but like they certainly weren't a part of the organization for that long. They certainly don't have as much skin in the game and they certainly get to walk away a lot cleaner and just move on to the next thing. And that's also very frustrating is because in the age of the internet, there really isn't two way accountability. It's kind of the court of public opinion, whichever way it decides to go. Uh, Your only option is to like not play or just try to weather the storm and not play may not be an option. If you're somebody who is working in the public sphere, trying to do some good, like, man, that's, that's brutal. And like, yeah, when he was talking about how there wasn't, it wasn't like financial crimes or like, sexual misconduct or something like also you know the good reasons why you get booted out of an organization like right how frustrating it must be for stuff like people said i was mean like come on really like even if you were like <laughs> that just it feels like man we got to have something better than this and yeah i'll have more once we get farther into that stuff but man like i'm trying i was trying to draw parallels because like i i have a lot of people who work for me and I don't always get along with all of them. And like some people have left because they disagreed or not. I don't know if it was exclusively because they disagreed with me, but like they definitely disagreed with me and they left and having that thought of like, yeah, I definitely haven't seen eye to eye with people, but like, I feel like no one has quit under me who didn't feel like I genuinely cared for them or whatever. But like, is there one of these people out there too? 
that's like yeah i i am the the super villain in their life story that ruined everything they care about like i certainly hope not but <laughs> it seemed like jeremy was pretty surprised <laughs> yeah. you know man yeah, and like, can you be um like i feel like if you are a boss there probably is someone who thought you were an asshole or a bad boss and i think that's inevitable not, like it, it, that's there's no way to get around that especially i think well i, I don't know if I'm, this is getting in too deep too quickly but like somebody who works in the position that he works in doing the thing that he does and he and his wife did as founders that not everybody can be that type of person and that type of person isn't necessarily the person who's going to run a massive organization that just has like good business bureaucracy and everything like those can be very very different types of people and in a successful way they probably should be yeah yeah, I think there's a lot to be said for the drive that allows you to do the things that you do and create the things you create. And then and then that that not necessarily translating super well to a, a very um, warm management style or something like that. But yeah, like it, I don't necessarily know that that's the case because I, I, I know so we can get into it a little bit more. But I know there yeah. are there's a lot of organizations and, you know, communities that worked with them that preemptive love is losing or is struggling to keep as partners because they're uh they're unhappy with the way things played out with the courtneys uh one of them is the community one of their communities in iraq who does their soap making um they they're not happy with the, with the courtneys no longer being part of it and it's so that's the they're, they're experiencing ramifications from those decisions at this point I don't know if we want to get into like to start out with like a gen like the, a timeline of events uh, because I don't think that was particularly clear uh, in the episode. I might we did a lot of bouncing back and forth. Yeah. So, um, preemptive love on their website, they had a response to some of the articles that were written. So, we don't have a super detailed account of some of the things that are supposedly happening. Like that's one of the things that Sam and I talked about very, uh, right from the get go when we started reading about this. And, and and it's like I said, we said in the episode, Sam was very familiar with the organization, had been a supporter and a follower for a long time. I was like, Jeremiah, like I didn't know who they were. I'd never heard of them. Never read the guy's book. Never heard of Jeremy Courtney. Uh, so jumping into this from an outside perspective, I mean, one of the things that I was struck by right off the bat from the the things that we have to go off of, right, which is really it comes down to, you know, outside of a couple of statements by the organization itself, which are mainly, uh, you know, similarly vague and stuff, we have like a few different articles written by no. one ex-employee. Are we dropping names? I don't see why not. I mean, I don't. It's he wrote the he wrote stuff. the article and it comes up when you find it. Like we we intentionally avoided names while talking with Jer, uh, with Jeremy because we weren't trying. It was the point of the conversation wasn't for him to uh, personally respond to any criti- any particular criticisms from individuals that he knew. So we were like we talked about articles and maybe some of the issues that came up with them uh, in a general sense, and he did respond to them, but it wasn't. It wasn't necessarily a creator like, a, oh, this guy said this about you. How do you respond? And we did try to avoid that. But I think for this and the purpose of what we're doing here in addressing as the three of us, the information that is out there about it, I think putting the names and the articles out is totally reasonable. So so this guy's name is Ben Irwin, and he was a, 
he's an ex-employee at the time when he started writing these articles and he's written, I think three or four. There's Um, like one, his like first one. And then he wrote two immediate follow-ups that just provided a little bit more information to the first one, like the letter that they had written to preemptive love. And then the, the letter. So he shares some of the letter that was originally written for them, you know, to them, to the board of directors. It was signed by a number of employees and, uh, you know, part of it is there and, and readable and part of it is redacted. So there's a big section towards the end that's redacted. I think actually looking at that again, I think it was just, I think that last section are the names of all the people who are on it and he redacted those. Uh, that, yeah. And I, I think he made mention of that. So, I mean, it might not be that there was any further content there, but, uh, so basically we're talking the, the, the timeline of events here starts in July of 2021. Uh, so on the 26th of July, uh, this particular guy, Ben Irwin, says uh, a departing member of the senior leadership team contacted the board and shared several concerns about preemptive love's culture and leadership dynamics. The concerns were raised from the standpoint of a concerned employee hoping to proactively alert the board to areas requiring our collective attention. The board acted immediately to gather information. Now, this is the board of directors statement of what happened. Um, so on August 13th, uh, you know, they continue to evaluate it, blah, blah, blah. August 20th, the board received a letter signed by a number of former employees that included serious complaints about preemptive love's founders, Jeremy and Jessica Courtney. This letter also made allegations related to race, gender, and power dynamics within the organization. We took these claims very seriously. The board concluded that immediate action should be taken. Um, August, uh, 26th, the board voted to launch a directed inquiry into Preemptive Love's leadership and financial transparency related to a single donor project, focusing specifically on the allegations raised. So they were going to look at a single project, which I think is probably the one that comes up in later articles. It's a, uh, it was kind of like a PR project where they sent uh, basically like little care packs that included a t-shirt to a bunch of their donors. Um, So on August 30th, after researching and interviewing numerous firms, the board commissioned Guidepost Solution because of their international experience, uh, their familiarity with NGOs, and their reputation for thorough analysis. Both parties agreed that Guidepost should maintain total independence throughout the inquiry process at no time as the board attempted to tamper with or influence their work. Now, um, I'm trying to see here. Uh, Which so August 13th, I, I skipped okay. over August 13th, but it says, while we evaluated the concerns about organizational culture and leadership dynamics, the board selected a respected international agency to conduct a full organizational cultural review. This organization, prim- led primarily by women of color, has also has noted experience working with similar organizations in cross-cultural settings. That's one of the things that's frustrating about this whole situation and the way that, you know, the nature of the complaints and the way it was brought up is that you get this back and forth, like vying for positioning where, you know, constantly people are, are you know, touting the, the, the race and gender and stuff of whoever's on their side of this. I don't know. Maybe it, maybe that's not a big deal, but it just no, seemed I, to me I, like... 
It, I, I agree with you. I, I, I'm not going to use the word woke because that's been what that doesn't even have a definition at this point. Uh, it's been so overused, but like there is like a Uber progressive Olympics. I think sometimes when it comes to this, these type things where everyone yeah needs to state their qualifications as upfront as, as possible, you know, like you can't just say they're super qualified for all these reasons. They have to be super qualified and primarily women of color, which if this was a investigating something specifically related to misuses around women of color, I'd be like helpful context makes sense. hundred percent that yeah. I agree with you. It's weird. It feels like I, I'm not offended learning that information, but I don't know what I'm supposed to do with that information now that you've told me other than like be impressed because you're like, is that what you wanted is for me to be impressed with your qualifications? Yeah. Well, and it's, it's strange. And on top of that, like the people filing the complaints here basically vetoed this organization out of the way. (laughs) They did not like them because they said that they didn't have enough investigative background and it's interesting to look at like the board's timeline of events versus what's brought up in these articles, because there's a number of things that when read in the context of the article sounds nefarious, but the, the what's missing in a lot of those things is like the speed at which the organization reacted to concerns about that particular thing and, and, you know, tried to bring in somebody different or change the policy or whatever. And I, I think that like, you just have to remember through all of this that like we are we are not talking about a long period of time between July 26 which is where one employee who's leaving raises concerns um August 20th when the board receives this letter signed by a bunch of ex-employees you know talking about their concerns and this initial article which uh you know, the, the, the initial article that came out that went public with their their complaints or with, the, you know, this particular guy, Ben Irwin, came out on December 16th. So we're talking yeah. about less than, what, like five months? You know, yeah. I mean, there was, was immediate was action taken. Yeah, like the, they, they reacted. They tried to bring in an organization that the people raising the concerns said, no, we don't like that organization. So they both agreed on guidepost solutions, you know. They conduct this internal investigation and audit of procedures. There's a couple other organizations that are brought in to review specific things like, you know, their international policy and and some of their financial, you know, procedures and stuff. I don't remember the exact details of it, but like they they sought third party assistance in looking at several of the things that were brought up as concerns. And yet, you know, this investigation didn't really even get a conclusion before this guy takes the story public and just like throws his side of things with a heavy, heavy, like anti Jeremy and Jessica Courtney spin on it out into the public sphere. And, and, you know, which stirred up, uh, you know, the, uh, the kind of Twitter storm that you would expect. That's true of a lot of, go ahead, Jeremy. I think that's true. A lot of times in stuff where it's the court of public opinion, is yep. they're expecting action and resolution before you've even had a chance to find out what actually happened. Like all it takes is a couple half cooked internet rumors that get a little bit of traction. And then people are angry that you've ever done business with this person or whatever. And you're like, hold on. Like we barely even got out of bed to figure out, is it real? Like, and I think that's because the reality of that stuff is it does take a long time to get to the truth. 
And if you're trying to operate with some integrity, you have to wait with for the truth. But by that point, if the public is mad about it, they feel like you've shirked your duty and you're allowing an abuser to remain in power and like whatever variation of it could be. I think it's just yeah. that stuff just takes longer than you want it to. And the people who who initiate the complaints or bring the problems to the table, I mean, regardless of that, what regardless of what happens after an investigation, the people who feel that they've been wronged are never, they're not going to be like, well, you did your investigation and therefore it, all I'm hearing is you telling me that this person's not a problem, but my personal experience says otherwise. Right. And, and they're, they're never going to so be on board. They're only going to be happy with the version. It's obvious from his story. He's only going to be happy with the version where they get drummed out of the organization and well, people say you're right and whatever. And so, then turns out, I don't think he really is happy with that because of course uh, he has a lot of stuff to say about them. After he's the, the type fact. of person who's going to write the article. It's like, well, they've left, but their legacy of abuse and blah, blah, blah remains. It's like, what do you want, dude? <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> I think that's where we're at with some of this is like, what do you want? I want to point out also. So Casey was reading some of the timeline of events on the preemptive love website. And that's, but I think it's worth mentioning that the timeline of events that they posted uh, was on December 20th of 2021. Uh, so the reason they posted this timeline of events was because uh, there was a lot, because when it was really in response to Ben's article, uh, because his article dropped on December 16th and it said a lot of things about what had happened. And that I think, preemptive love was trying on December 20th. They're just like what they, they said, unfortunately what has been communicated online about this process has contained misinformation and verifiable falsehoods. As a result, we are providing clarifying facts along with a timeline of events. Although we reverently hold space for everyone to share their own experiences in their own words, we cannot endorse false information or misleading statements about preemptive love as it affects the ongoing good work of the organization. Which, which so, always comes off as second in these complaints like the the core purpose and work of the organization overseas and iraq and all that kind of stuff like it's always kind of like seems like an afterthought to the people writing these articles it's like the primary concern is clearing up you know the off the inner office disputes that they had and the problems that they had with jeremy's management style and stuff like that um and they're willing to you know, just spike the organization publicly in order to get their way, you know? And yeah. I think he, here's, here's a good example of like the, there's a couple of things here that I think are a good example of the, the, the timeliness of the board's reaction to some of these concerns. So he said that on August 20th was when the board received the letter that was signed by all of these ex-employees, right? Um, August 26th, Board voted to launch a direct a directed inquiry into preemptive love's leadership and financial transparency related to a single donor project for focusing specifically on the allegations raised. Right. So like here's a concrete thing that we can go review and see if there was, you know, uh, wrongful action taken or if people were misled. Right. Um, on September 2nd or on August 30th, they brought in Guidepost Solutions, which is that third-party organization that had familiarity yeah. with NGOs, uh, because the, the the people that were lodging the complaints had problems with the initial organization that they hired. On September second, 
So from August 20th, receiving that letter from the employees, September 2nd, the board decided that Jeremy and Jessica should take a leave of absence until the conclusion of that investigation in order to protect the integrity of the process. That's incredibly fast. For anyone hearing this that doesn't understand like the corporate world, that's anything to happen in that amount of time. Just getting the board together to talk about something is a several day thing frequently and just getting enough information people can relay back and forth like no matter how much you want it to be true, people's lives can't just stop the moment something happens. And it normally takes a few days to have those conversations and make decisions and then come up with a public thing to say about the decisions and whatever. So all of that happening in a couple of weeks, that's very, very quick in the corporate And it's world. also worth noting that it, Jeremy, it says also Jeremy and Jessica agreed with the board and they remain on leave as the, and remained on leave as the board had was waiting to figure things out. Je Jeremy and Jessica were, not just in full cooperate, like, oh, okay. Like, but they were like, yes. And Jeremy did point this out. And I think what preemptive loves website states specifically speaks to what Jeremy said was that, yeah, we heard this and we agreed with the board. We thought, yes, we should figure out where these problems are. Cause it's not their intent to, I mean, I don't, maybe it would have been a bad look to fight it and be like, I don't think so. I could maybe they just were aware of the type of optics optics that would have come with fighting something like that. But I don't know. Uh, I think there's other places further down and some of the other things we'll look at that when going over some of this timeline stuff that really confirms that this was a mutual decision with Jeremy, Jessica and the board. Right? So I don't believe it was just an optics. Let's go along with it. Well, and even, you know, the optics side of it is the worst part for the organization. Like, you're not talking about like the, uh, you know, the financial guy that sits in the basement and, you know, works on a calculator like this guy. It's another part of the the continued complaints from these ex-employees about Jeremy is that he's a figurehead. He's the public face of this organization. He's a big part of their marketing, a big part of their outreach, like their donors who support all their work and stuff like that, a lot of them, they have a relationship with Jeremy as well as preemptive love. So it's a big deal to say, hey, we're putting these two on, on administrative leave while we figure this out. That in and of itself carries serious PR ramifications for the organization, even if it turns out that there's nothing to these allegations and everything's fine. It's, it's damaging in and of itself. Yeah. And so the when the first piece that preemptive love put out publicly was the was actually let me just see what they called it here. Let me scroll up real quick. Uh, update uh, board update to the preemptive love community. Nope. Um, yeah, yeah, that's it. Um, nope. So they but the original uh, email that went out to people who were on their email list, they posted it on their Facebook, whatever. Um, it was on December 17th was when they put this like open letter out. And that letter just in the letter, it says like that Jeremy and Jessica were put on the sleeve. And it's just worth pointing out. Cause we did talk to Jeremy about this too. Like the December 17th, here's what's going on with preemptive love. And then it was on December 20th. They gave the full timeline events in response to, Right before they put this letter out is when Ben put his Medium article out, seemingly to, to I don't know, like spearhead whatever it was that yeah. preemptive law was going to. The results of the, or, of the investigation, right. which 
I, I assume he expected he wouldn't like. Yeah, or he knew because, I mean, preemptive love does maintain that they were in communication with people about the process. They weren't just like, give us your side of the story. All right, now piss off until it's time to until it's time to go. Like they're they're not going to publicly announce the where they're at without having any sort of private conversations with the people involved saying this is where things are going. And I, I this is where if I could be devil's advocate for a minute. Yep. I'm assuming there's some actual real stuff behind what these people are saying. Like 34 people signing a letter probably does not mean it's completely made up, right? Like, sure. Even if it's hurt feelings or, or slights or whatever, like there's gotta be something there for that many people to be in some level of agreement about it. Um, I think one of the frustrating things about something like an investigation like this is there's what's, you know, there's what, you know, and there's what you can prove. And an investigation is going to have to work. They can work off of testimony, but they're going to also have to work off of like, oh, you said that Jeremy was gaslighting you about this or spoke abusively or whatever. Like, does anyone have a recording? Does anyone have contemporaneous notes? Does anyone like, what do you have to substantiate this? Because if you read this guy's letters, he has all kinds of stuff in there that there is, he doesn't provide any basis for. And it doesn't mean that he does didn't to the investigators, but like, he doesn't give you anything to know that that's anything other than his opinion. And the problem with that is even if his opinion is accurate or even close to accurate, that may not be something the investigation could do something with. And you see this with um, the me too movement and sexual harassment and sexual assault cases. There's what, you know, happened, the people involved, and there's what you can actually prove to the satisfaction of a jury or a court of law, or to satisfy a judge that a lawsuit should go forward. And that doesn't mean that that doesn't work out that you're entirely wrong. It just means it didn't meet the standard for whatever. And it's possible that he's right or partially right about a number of these things and got very frustrated when what he was hearing from the investigators or from the board was like, we don't have evidence to substantiate that. Or like, we have not found anything solid and compelling enough to move past this point. That doesn't mean it didn't happen. It just means they can only work with what they've got. And I wonder if that's where he got kind of frustrated and was like, well, I'm going to air it out anyway, because I know it's true. You know, in my heart, my lived experience says it's true and nobody can take away his opinion from him. Right. And I'm sure, I I mean, I can't disagree with any of that. I I do feel like 34 people signing this. And then um, I don't think all of the people who signed it uh, were ended up deciding to be part of the investigation. They decided to not share their story um, for whatever reasons Uh, that obviously there's no way to know what that is, but it's like they, if they're, even if you have like 20 something, even, you know, that having 20 something people say the same thing somewhat independently is still, uh, that's, that's good information. So I think where we, I think what becomes the problem is, if if this is true, what would the correct outcome then? Because it feels like when the article's written, the only acceptable outcome was Jeremy and Jessica being fired uh, for, for Ben. And yeah. maybe some other people that Ben is a spokesperson for. But I think where this becomes troubling uh, is when... I got some stuff right here, like some uh, uh, regarding the timeline of statements released by preemptive love and what they were working to do. So on January 4th, um, that was, that was 
then so on I already pointed out on December 20th they released their timeline of events in response to the misinformation. And then on January 4th they posted a new update. Some quotes from that uh, that I think get to the meat of it. Of course, go on the website and read it for yourself. Uh, I don't I'm not intentionally leaving out anything that could be helpful, but I, I think I've I think I've narrowed it down to a couple of main points of milestones that preemptive love was proud that they had achieved. So one of them says another milestone in our process was to commission additional supportive services for preemptive loves people and talent department. This included a comprehensive analysis of preemptive loves policies and procedures, measuring them against industry standards and best practices where there were gaps a roadmap was developed to move the organization forward in these areas over the next six months. So we see that in light of what they found, uh, which in, it was related in a lot of ways to like we just and Jeremy also pointed this out, too. And I think this just this statement backs up that that's factual information he was providing is that it there were. Yeah, there were gaps in policies and procedures, uh, some of it related to HR, some of it related to the way that there was a channel for people to go if they had a problem with the way things were done. Uh, and I, I think he was really transparent about all of that. And then the, and the next thing they state is uh, we reached another significant milestone on December 20th, 2021, when Guidepost Solutions verbally presented the findings of their investigation to the full board of directors, Jeremy and Jessica Courtney were also present during this call. That also kind of, that also is what Jeremy stated when we spoke with him. He says, because of our commitment to respecting the confidentiality, we promised to every person willing to share their experiences. We did not review specifics, specific interviews during the presentation. Broad themes became apparent and the information we received confirmed the information that the board itself had independently collected and verified during this time. And then they ended the letter by letting people know Jeremy and Jessica Courtney will not be returning to their roles or serving the organization in any capacity. We will have more information about this to share shortly. So you get the idea uh, that there were, I think this is where I, I'm feeling the conflict and they, so they, they, again, uh, 22, 20, a few days later on January 26, make a more, another statement to, try to clarify their previous statement uh, because it looked like, yeah, we developed this roadmap uh, with guidepost solutions. This is what we wanted to do. We had a kind of a, a path forward. Uh, I think it sounds like that path may have originally included Jeremy and Jessica. Uh, and then, and then one day it no longer included them. <laughs> That's what it feels like when I read this. Yeah, in the uh, cost-benefit analysis, at some point around the 1st of January, it became evident that their best course of action was to somehow separate themselves from the PR nightmare that was bound to follow if they kept those two. Yeah, it was January 26th they released their other statement. They go, the decision to separate from Jeremy and Jessica Courtney was not due to sexual misconduct or financial malfeasance, including fraud or corruption but there were serious errors in judgment and upholding the values of preemptive love, which is vague as fuck. I'm not satisfied with that answer at all. I think that's another, I think that's another way that corporations or organizations drop the ball, even if they do everything right with investigation behind the scenes. And I'm saying this from like direct personal experience. If they, even if they do a good job with that, 
it, when you're being tried in the court of public opinion, you also have to do a good job with the way you communicate. And it sucks because a lot of the time, a lot of that information is not fit for public consumption. And it's hard to strike that balance of like doing your due diligence to be accountable and transparent with not just hanging dirty laundry out to dry. So to satisfy the bloodlust of people who don't have any skin in the game. And like, that's, yeah. it is hard to get that decision. Right. But I agree with you. Uh, when you say, yeah, they weren't fired because they were sexual assaulters or stealing money. That makes it sound really bad. Even if it's not those two things, it's like, well, it wasn't those you're thinking like, was it murder? Like there's a lot of other bad things. Like what? Yeah. Up errors, errors in judgment and not living up to our values. Like everyone reading that with any discretion is going to understand that like, that that's glossing over a lot, like not living up to the values. What does that really mean? And like, right. what are the values? Like, what like I think because that's that statement came so far after the results of the guidepost like investigation and their path forward. So it's like we need to maybe if this is the if these are the problems we found and these are the things that people have experienced, we need to find a way to fix this. And usually. Usually plan A isn't to just fire the founding members and CEOs. No, to cut them out of any role. Yeah. Usually plan A is to, okay, you're missing all of this. And we just reviewed that with plenty of people who understand industry standards. So step A is to implement these standards. If we get down the road and despite, or we think that these two are like thwarting this, roadblocking it, making it irrelevant and trying to just maintain the level of control that is inappropriate. Like, yeah, then you revisit that with the board. But to, to step one, just say, all right, uh, we had a plan forward uh, to implement a, a solid HR plan or a good way to report problems or whatever. And then to just be like, actually, scratch that. We're just going to get rid of these people. Yeah. I, it seems dumb. So something I mentioned earlier about like, I didn't know when we were going to get into the depth. I feel like this is the depth part. Yeah. When, when he was saying the, when Jeremy was saying the bit about the ladder about the policy regarding ladder usage that actually like that helped click some pieces into place. Yeah. To me, what would have made sense. And this is again, not having any backstory and I don't know if any of this is true or not, you know, but it seemed like based on what we do know, what would have made sense is if they were like, look, you guys are founders, you have a heart and a passion that is not, cannot be duplicated with anyone else in the organization. Most likely, at least not to that level. That's why you are the founders. That's why you bootstrap this. Like, and those people aren't always going to be the nicest, most patient, most understanding person because they're passionate and they're doing something they really believe in. So they're going to, they're, they are going to potentially hurt people or processes or companies wanting to do that, even if their intentions are great, move them into a founder role where they stay in the pocket of what they're uniquely good at, hire people who are good at being executives and not running and administering nonprofits, have them run that stuff. And if you present that option and Jeremy and his wife are like, no, you know, it's our way or the highway. We built this place and we'll run it, you know, until the day we die, then okay, then you're out of options. But like, it doesn't sound like they went down that road at all based on what, what Jeremy said. It seemed, I mean, it's, it was a total surprise to him. So if they consider that option, it wasn't for very long, but like that way you keep the founder in a public position, but you remove them from the things that they're a founder of, of a missions related organization. Yeah. They're not an amazing administrator. He doesn't understand ladder policies. You need someone who does understand ladder policies. So you don't get sued and the organization doesn't get hurt in a way that yeah. actually hurts their mission. Like you need those people to be good at that stuff. And they don't have to be the same people who are amazing at the missional work that they started it for in the first place. You want to 
the Christian term would be protect their anointing, right? You, but but it, it, it illustrates it. You want to keep them in the pocket of where like, this is why you guys started the organization. This is what you're uniquely good at. This is why all these people followed you. Let's keep you in that and insulate you and build some protection around you and some guardrails so that you do have some accountability and everything to make sure you, maybe you're not the one who's directly coaching some of those staff because you're not good at it. Maybe you're not the one setting those policies, like remove those things from you and let's keep you doing the thing that you're amazing at. And you'll probably like it more. It didn't sound like he loved running in a 150 person organization. He just wanted the extra size to, to reach more people. Right? Like I imagine they probably would have been okay with that once they got over the sting of like some of that being taken from them and everything that would be painful. But like, it feels like there's a great path forward there. As long as the thing that they did is not so horrible that they have to be removed immediately. And at yeah. least for what we know, it doesn't sound like there was a smoking gun for that. No, if, yeah. if there was, it would be here. I mean, let's, let's be right. honest. If, like if these articles happened. are full of like, like just, ancillary seemingly unimportant stories and and examples and stuff and it's all vague like if there was some real misgivings and 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 you know nefarious deeds there would there was plenty of space for those you know used lots of space on very flowery adjectives i hate it when people write this way they're talking about like and they've done violence against our friends and gaslit us and da da da. da. And they're describing a yes. whole lot of very flowery things. I'm like, hold on, substantially buzzwords. Right, right. It's like, please, if that's true, it's terrible. Take out some of those sentences, replace them with proof that one of them is true, and I'll take it more seriously. But otherwise, it sounds like you're just using flowery language to beat up on somebody, and you're keeping it vague enough that it cannot be proven one way or the other. Well, I think to the yeah. point of like the separation of powers and like how that would have made more sense as a as an option. I I think like what you see here in the timeline is that I mean it looks to me like immediately the board was like on the they were, you know, on the back foot playing def or desperately trying to play defense against this like group of people with that were lodging the complaints, you know. I mean like I said, the speed at which they acted on some of these things and the way in which they were portrayed in these articles kind of illustrates that like this was a no-win situation for everybody involved and the board should have taken a more a more control they should have get you know kept more control over the process, I think. One of which, and this comes up in one of the articles, is you know, they talk about like how during the investigation, you know, they kind of characterize it as like you know, the board of directors tried to protect the organization and stuff by making all of the, you know, people who wanted to be interviewed, they had to come through the board of directors to in order to talk to the organization. Like they were trying to control the flow of information and intimidate people into staying quiet, especially if they were people who would rather remain anonymous. And it says, okay, so September 15th, after the board became aware of gaps in preemptive loves, people and talent policies and procedures, including reporting grievances, a respected outside firm was engaged to review all employee-related policies and make detailed recommendations to ensure a safe and healthy workplace for all employees. Okay? Outside company again. September 15th, same day. The board was approached by staff members who wished to share their experiences with the board and with the investigative team. The board offered to be the point of contact for any employee who would like to be interviewed. So there comes the, you know, you have to go through us in order to talk to the investigator, right? 
Now, the next day, September 16th, the board learned that the established process might raise concerns among those who wish to speak to interviewers but wish to with their participation to be confidential. The board immediately revised the path for participating in the investigation and gave staff direct access to the investigative team for those who wish to contact Guidepost directly, while offering to be a direct point of contact for those who preferred to contact the board first. That sounds like they're doing all the right moves. That sounds like someone brings up a concern. They're like, oh yeah, good point. Immediately we'll make a change. No big deal. Yeah. And this was used in the article as like an example of like this desperate need to control the fallout of the situation. And it's the next day. Right. The it's, next it's, day they change the people policy. who have never been in charge of this type of thing and they don't understand how it works. <laughs> They're not getting their pound of flesh as quickly or as juicy as sizzling as they want it. So they're like, everything is seen as they use language. Uh, this Ben guy, you, and I think the other article was written by uh, Courtney, I think. They use a lot of language that sounds like uh, the, they're retreating or they're cowering or like they're using words in a very specific way to make it seem like anything is nefarious, like you said. And all that says to me is you just you've never run anything of this size. You don't understand what goes into this. You don't understand how any of this works. And you're interpreting everything through your lens of these are bad people and must burn. Like it's gone from whatever actual slights existed to it's a binary like you you must burn this down or otherwise justice is not being done. Exactly. That was that seems like that was just the intent from the get go for some of the people involved here. Yeah. Let's go through the rest. of. There's only a few more dates on the timeline of events. Why don't we just hit the rest of those? Uh, and that way we kind of cover all the bases on that. OK, so the the following day, the point the board sent a follow up staff communication with a direct channel to guidepost for employees with concerns or a desire to be interviewed. Okay, so concerns raised on the fifteenth or on the sixteenth. Next day, a public message is sent out saying, "Here is the direct channel to guidepost." November second, based on facts gathered independent of the investigation, the board engaged an external organizational expert to evaluate infrastructure and recommend modifications intended to increase accountability of leadership and enhance employee empowerment communications and relations. So another outside organization putting structures in place to make sure there's accountability for leadership specifically. Uh, November 12th, the board leadership that they had not yet chosen to get rid of. Exactly. The board commissioned an externally conducted regulatory and compliance audit of international policies and procedures to supplement the investigation's findings related to leadership. So again, leaning on an outside force, specifically auditing their international policies and procedures. Uh, November 24th, the people and talent team conducted a thorough analysis of compliance with Preemptive Love's current policies and procedures. The board was presented with necessary areas of improvement along with a six-month plan to roll out a comprehensive suite of revised policies. An organization-wide implementation of these recommendations is already underway. So November 24th, day before Thanksgiving, they're presented with some of the findings on the uh, the people and talent team, and they presented a six-month plan to institute some of the changes necessary in that particular. So it's easy to get a little tied up here, but there's multiple separate audits and investigations going on by third parties, different third parties that are specifically oriented to look at certain parts of the organization to make sure that the correct policies and procedures are in place. And, and look, like we said before, I'm sure that they found some things that needed to change. 
And and I think it you you have to keep in mind that like this is an organization that had grown to include up to 150 people across multiple different countries. And sometimes, you know, you just don't have that corporate structure in place yet, you know, to to handle the the complexities of dealing with that. But I think that 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 puts us up to the end of the uh the board's involvement of the controversy, but, um, but what, July through, I, I do also the last thing they say after, so the last update you gave was November 24th. And then it says July through present, contrary to what has been asserted online, the board has been openly and regularly communicating with staff. Nothing has been hidden and the board has never sought to operate in secret at any point. I interpret it's, that as they're not communicating with you personally so you're mad or you're not getting what you want from the board you don't, so get, to be, not, you don't yeah. get to head up the investigation so or, or, or just like your does this guy doesn't work there anymore right no, no no so yeah you lose some of your uh your access privileges when you no longer have access and i also that's the interpretation i got from some of that is like he's not they're not getting everything that they want out of this but also they're not entitled to that anymore they're an ex-employee and you may not like that yeah. that's how the world works but the board rightly is more concerned by the people who currently work at the organization than someone who doesn't and is never coming back. So like, why do they care about you? You know, yeah. in the, in the cold corporate world, why should they care about you compared to some of the active employees and all the active missional work that they're doing? But even in yeah. a small business setting where none of these structures are in place, you know, if on your way out the door, you lodge complaints about how the owner did things and the policies that you didn't like and the things that you were worried about, you know, to expect that he's going to keep you updated on how he's changed those things over the course of six months is just not realistic. And and it's yet like that's one more thing that that Sam and I have talked about several times in regards to all of this is that there's a feeling here that like some of these people involved, especially, you know, Ben Irwin in particular and uh, the the other woman that wrote a blog post, which we'll get into, I'm sure. But there's this just like overwhelming sense that like, oh, these are not like, are, are these people just, are they out of touch with what it's like to work for a normal company? Yeah, right. Like, dude, we've had terrible bosses. I mean, I've, I've been pretty lucky in that I've never had a really awful like direct manager. Um, but I disagreed with a lot of the things that I saw. And and I deal with businesses on a daily basis that like, if I, if I wouldn't work there, if, mm -hmm. if they talk to me the way that they talk to some of their employees, you know, but like, that's just reality. And it is different because it's a nonprofit that's all based around these ideals and stuff like that. I have, there's no, no doubt in my mind that Jeremy really and different. Jessica's management style probably left something to be desired. And maybe they were coarse with employees when they didn't get their way and stuff. I mean, I could see those complaints being valid, but you know, we also don't really get a lot of good examples of those complaints. No, and that's part of what's don't. irritating about this whole thing is like, it, all of this is given in generalities. And then there's a few examples given of like, what seems to be kind of trivial things or examples of like, well, you know, they didn't like what this person posted on social media. And so they reprimanded them for it. Or, uh, you know, one of the complaints that that the woman makes in her blog post is that like, 
she wrote some articles that they didn't they didn't like the message and they didn't like the direction or felt that it you know upheld the values and public image that the company was trying to put out and so they you know said that you know her writings had to be reviewed before they were posted on the company website and like that's one of the things that's brought forth as like a complaint and like this you can't believe what control freaks these people are and stuff and it's like you know yeah. my company would not let the marketing department like one person in the marketing department just put out public statements about the values of the company without them being reviewed because they have like overall goals <laughs> of what they're trying to communicate to everything and you want to like like brand alignment and very boring corporate words like that like it doesn't mean it's something nefar nefarious it means they're in charge of steering the direction and they want to make sure that everyone's pulling in that direction. And it's okay for you to disagree with it. It's okay for you to think they're making those decisions for the wrong reasons. It's okay for you to think that they're not participating in the conversation that they should, but they're the ones who get to make those decisions. And them making that decision does not mean they're doing anything wrong. It means yeah. you disagree. And like, maybe you're right, but it, it's almost never going to be as binary as you're right and they're wrong. It might just be you have a different goal in mind you have different values you have a different mission that you personally care about and that's fine that might just mean you're not a good fit for what they're trying to do and you joined their organization yeah like i think it's so strange because we go from you know november 24th the board was presented with the necessary areas of improvement along with a six-month plan to roll out a comprehensive suit of revised policies an organization-wide implementation of these recommendations is already underway on November 24th. And then on January 4th, we have Jeremy and Jessica Courtney will no longer be returning to their roles. After the shitstorm that got created of like how awful they were, the day before they gave a public response about all of this, it's just, it, it, they, they, it, it's, it seems obvious that they found stuff that was a problem and needed to be fixed. Otherwise you don't go on a six month plan to fix it. So like, I don't know what was said. I don't know what they gathered, but yeah, like as we've mentioned, like there might've been aspects of their leadership style that were wanting. They may have really hurt some people in the wake of trying to uh, continue the mission of their work. And I don't know. I just, yeah, I, I think it sounds like, there were problems and that they were trying to fix them. And then this, the court of, you know, you mentioned the court of public opinion before Jeremiah, where it's just, now they just have to juggle this. And it feels like there was, it did feel like they had a good way forward at that point. And you just had to vaguely talk about them not aligning with your values and move on. Well, and maybe this is a good time to like really look at the, the, some of the content of the uh, of yeah. the articles written by by Ben Irwin and uh, and Courtney Christensen. Yeah. Um. So, just to just to put some of this in context, because I feel I feel like the way that all of this is framed is just it's it's really in bad faith, in my opinion. It's it's like a this is a sales pitch. And and they're pitching the idea that the Courtney's are these power hungry, you know, celebrity drunk control freaks running a cult, and and the 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 title of the 
article is Preemptive Love, What Happens When a Charity Runs More Like a Cult? The aid group founded by Jeremy and Jessica Courtney has a history of abusing staff and possibly misleading donors. We're going to hear a lot of possibly this, possibly that when it comes down to actually alleging wrongdoing or or dishonesty when it comes to finances and stuff like that, right? So uh, it talks about the organization's start and... Uh, They call their followers to love anyway and build a world where everyone rises. Inside the organization, it's a different story. The Courtney's prefer to govern by fear. They see themselves as authorities on gender and racial equality. While in practice, they embody some of the worst forms of white saviorism. Staff are verbally and psychologically abused. The Courtney's at times appear to mislead donors about how their money is used. Earlier this year, dozens of former staff came forward with stories of bullying, gaslighting, at threats. At times appear to. Yeah. I'm sorry. I, I'm just, that just sunk it. At times appear to. And also the white saviorism. That's. That seems to be a title that you can apply to anything that you don't like from, uh, from so like, like good deeds that you, that come from a person you don't like can be labeled as white saviorism. It would make sense if like he started this ministry and they raised a whole bunch of money and then he went over and was taking lots of pictures of him in war-torn areas and whatever. But it sounds like they started with the in war-torn areas doing the work and then started promoting it later as a way of growing the ministry, which to me is like the opposite of like, what's he supposed to do? Not go? Like it's, it's white saviorism if you're if you're trying to make it seem like such a big deal that you're personally there. And they do call out those couple examples where he says, it looks like they posted misleading and you know, footage or something like that, which I guess we have no way of proving one way or the other. Like we have to take the guy's word or not. It's um, even some of those, which, uh, which we'll get into shortly. I mean, the, the nefarious way in which he describes how the footage was edited is ridiculous. It's ridiculous. It is, and uh, but it doesn't mean there couldn't be a misleading aspect to it, whether intentional or unintentional, because it doesn't sound like he ever confronted Jeremy about it or got an explanation. This is just his interpretation of the raw information he believes he saw. Like, and again, I'm not doubting his lived experience or whatever, but it, like he might just misunderstand. Like, I am. or he's not just viewing it through a. Le- I th- honestly. If, if you don't like somebody at a point, if you're already at a point where you don't like somebody, you ever, you're going to view everything they do as in bad faith too. So like, I don't know where he was at at this point, when he, but it's just like, maybe he didn't even have a problem at that time with what, with Jeremy, but you get to a point by, it's just like, well, now that I have this feeling about him, I'm going to go ahead and reinterpret everything that's been done through this lens of you're a bad person. Like well, you could do, if you did that to any one of us, you'd be, you could paint, a, like you could write some pretty shitty blog posts about anyone from that perspective, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> I, I don't know. I went down a bit of a rabbit hole today looking at uh, past tweets. And at one point, he kind of went after Shane Claiborne. Wait, which which guy? Jeremy ben or when the guy who wrote okay. this article, as like some sort of like like uh, basically accused him of valuing like peace with the oppressors over, you know, like showing the truth of like the whatever. It was something to do with footage, and he didn't release the whole video because he said it didn't look. 
Ah, uh, so this guy, so so Shane didn't meet Ben's personal standard of morality. Exactly. That, that Ben gets to enjoy as someone who has not put himself in front of the bullets before, it sounds like. Yeah. So Yeah, wasn't Shane like a human shield in Iraq? <laughs> Point. Like, and we've talked to him, and like so many people who listen to this podcast have talked about how highly they think of Shane Claiborne. And to see like, oh, oh, it's not just it's not just this person. It's not just the Courtney's that don't meet his standard. It's also Shane Claiborne isn't good enough. <laughs> like, what do you like want? The, Please the don't follow who, me around. <laughs> the guy who foregoes a profit on any of the works that he does. Every book he writes, everything goes into an organization of which he doesn't control the money and he gets a poverty level salary that he lives off of. Like this guy, I, I don't, I the there's so few ways to criticize someone who lives their life like that. The only thing you could like I, the biggest criticism people have given him is that he hasn't come out that I've heard so far is that he hasn't specifically stated that he's pro or in support of LGBTQ people or affirming even though he's supportive of them and it's like I don't know man I just you look at his life and everything he does and everything he's given up and the way that he lives it and gives it completely like he could be an asshole and still be doing an amazing, wonderful work in the world. It's right? crazy yeah. to think that you'll like <laughs> criticize him for not portraying something the way you want when his entire life has been about building bridges and trying to establish. And I, think, and I think Jeremy did a good job of articulating that of like for any of his sins, real or imagined, like he's put in the work and the people he put in the work with directly for whatever reason, maybe they're all misled or whatever, like this guy Ben thinks, but they're still in there putting in the work with him in the oh, new organization. Members of his cult. Right, know? yeah, exactly. Because they're, like, they're incapable of making their own decisions as adults, you know. That's that's yeah. the other thing. I don't know. I'm getting off track here. I think, but like I think the, it's, he, he has an impossible standard. That's what we're seeing throughout all this. He doesn't articulate exactly what his standard is, but it's an impossibly high moral ground that he gets to not define and then sit on and cast dispersions on anyone who doesn't meet it. Even people and never be satisfied done. with the outcome. Yeah. Oh, done. you were fired. So, cool. Now as a person who's fired from his organization, who is not, you know, a prisoner, he's not in jail. He is in a, he's a person who gets to go on and do something else with his life. Now, the second he launches his new organization, and, you post an article the next day, disparaging it completely. And, and that's, that's another yeah. thing about the internet that I really hate is like, Again, it goes back to what's good enough for you. Like you don't, you don't have to bear any accountability whether you were right or wrong. And I'm not saying that like this guy Ben needs to be punished or something. I'm just saying like he he, he needs gets, a spanking. He gets to okay. <laughs> he gets to walk away from this, you know, relatively scot free. Like I don't, I don't. He doesn't appear to be super famous or anything. I'm not trying to disparage him, but like it doesn't look like he's using this to catapult his like commentary career or whatever you know like it looks like this is this is just some stuff he's done and then he's moved up to probably some other normalish job maybe working for a nonprofit, maybe not but like he gets to just cast these barbs as much as he wants to and it'll get traction because he's talking about someone with a lot higher public profile than him and all he's potentially doing well in his mind he might believe he's he's saving the people who are going to be hurt by this new organization i guess but like yeah, it feels like. So, what would you like him to do? He, they've they've lost their life's work, or what they feel like is their life's work. They have taken the people who still believe in them, and they're going to do that work again somewhere else with the people who are happy to be there and all chose to be there under their own volition. Isn't that your ideal situation? Yeah, yeah, and that's. I mean, it probably. It, uh, 
if it sounds like we're being a little harsh towards Ben, that's that's one of the things that we're jumping ahead a little bit. Like Jeremy recently announced that he's part of a new organization called Humanite. It's founded by refugees and war survivors. Instead, I mean, they've just barely immediately takes issue with because he says Jeremy's like considering himself to be like a refugee, which I think is connecting a few dots that are a little far away from each other. But sure. Right. Like the, this organization hasn't had a chance to do anything yet. They've just announced the founding of it and like a couple of social media posts about the direction of things. And he's already posting like takedown articles about what to maybe expect about this organization and what it could do in the future. Like just pure speculation based on like, well, we know from past experience that Jeremy and Courtney are terrible people. And that past yeah. experience is what we're going to use for the rest of time. <laughs> and so what, and then the lack of uh, character that I think he shows with, with this recent article is why I find it. I think it's even, it's more easy, I think to dismiss anything that he said before. And I don't know if that's a right way to go about the way that I process information, but it's like he, here he goes, in uh, some, he's talking about pictures that are up on the, the humanite website. And he goes, some aren't even, um, the image below depicting a man giving a drink of water to a detainee belongs to IHAO, an Iraqi based NGO that was funded by preemptive love until the Courtney's cut them loose, whatever that means. But before we even touch on that and how frivolous he says something that has a lot of serious implications, he goes, Neither the Courtney's nor any PLC staff took part in this particular aid mission. The photo below showing a child holding a bag of bread is from a former partner in Syria, which preemptive love doesn't appear to have funded for some time. And then he goes, there is a small disclaimer on humanites footer stating that some of the photos show the founders previous work and that they were used with permission. So they did everything technically correct. It's by like the they're not like stealing these but, photos. Yeah. Actually, so infuriating. He followed this up with a Twitter post saying exactly the same thing about the photos that they use. That's I, it's it's so petty. I, I have I have some experience in that. That like if you don't guys don't mind, it Go would take a minute to walk through. So I told you I used to work for a nonprofit. Um, what they did is they worked in Honduras and El Salvador with orphaned, abused, and incarcerated kids. Um, and what I really loved about this nonprofit was, yes, we had a North American support office, but it was very small. Almost all of the staff were Honduran and El Salvadoran. This this organization's um, they didn't believe in like adoption. They didn't believe adoption was a solution for white saviorism reasons and whatever else. They believed the solution mm -hmm. was invest in the country down there, hire people down there to teach these kids, to teach them job skills, general education, counseling uh, inside detention centers, like. All that type of stuff. And I mean, I could talk for hours about it. I believe a lot in the organization. Um, I did not leave because I didn't believe in the organization. It was actually because of the leadership at the time. <laughs> and I still support them these days. Like, again, that's a whole long story we could talk about sometime. But I was the graphic designer in the North American office. I was also their photographer, quote unquote. We got phot photographs from like trips that would go down to in-country. But I went on a trip in 2011 and I took photos of orphaned abuse and incarcerated kids in detention centers and stuff. And when we came back, we developed rules for how we were going to responsibly use these images because some of these kids were in gangs or they used to be in gangs 
and then like got saved when they got in jail or something. And so they have to be sequestered in a different part of the jail away from the gang. Some of these kids, their parents were looking for them to abuse them or sell them again. Like there's all these horrible, horrible reasons why you would want to be careful with the privacy of some of these kids involved. So usually our policy was we would not use the photos of the kids until they had already aged out. So we would use a photo to illustrate them of like, they were here three years ago, but we wouldn't use it while they were still actively there. And we constantly had to have phone calls from in country and stuff saying, Hey, uh, this kid's parents are looking for them. Go look, like look through our photo archives, tag anything that has them in it, make sure we're not using it anywhere. Or I mean, the heartbreaking moment was like, this kid died. Are we using them anywhere that not that we would remove it from everywhere that we were using it if a kid had died, but like, you'd want to be selective, you know, you'd, and like we sure. had those policies because the important thing was illustrating the thing that was happening, not that it happened yesterday or the day before, because right. the detention communicating was, an idea through an image. Exactly. And like, we were very, very careful about that. And we were a tiny organization and we already had that figured out of like, you have to be careful with this because this is not America. People will do very bad things with this information if you do not carefully protect it. And so, yes, a lot of the times we were not showing the exact detention center or the exact kids or whatever. We did lie about that all the time, but I don't view it as like a moral lie. Right. I view it as using our discretion to protect the people that we were trying to help and, and illustrate the point that we were trying to make in a way that is intellectually and emotionally honest, even if it's not technically accurate all the time. And to me, that's all I got from reading this is like, they're, they're using photos of what they've done to illustrate what they want to do. And they're, they got permission. I mean, assuming, you know, they put that disclosure on there and they actually did it. They got permission and it is stuff that they funded. What's the problem? It sounds like this person just doesn't know about acceptable use policies and how to actually protect people in sensitive situations or whatever, because they've never done it. Well, he does Let me say neither the Courtney, what is, uh, no, he says, uh, it's mm, only preemptive love or its former partners can confirm whether that last part is true. Uh, the part about it being used with permission, but like, it's going to be like, you're not going to put up images state underneath them, that those images are used with the organization's permission and have that not be true as a launch site. Like what this guy's been around the block. I don't know. It's just, it's just rings of like the pettiness that so many of these accusations have. And I'll, I'll, I'll give you another example here from his original article. Uh, Because like I said, in the interview, there seems to be a lot of resentment over who gets credit for what and whether or not Jeremy is, you know, taking steps to make sure that everybody knows he's not like, you know, standing under a firing AK 47 while he's in, you know, raising funds and stuff. And so in this, uh, in the section of this article called plausible deniability, um, this is where like it's a good example of like how of what's just laced through these things because he says in uh in may of 2016 iraqi forces launched an offensive to retake fallujah from isis control tens of thousands of people fled for their lives while hala al Saraf's team risked their lives bringing food to fleeing families jeremy was in his office 250 miles away in the relative safety of northern iraq that's one detail often left out of his story of dropping into Iraq in the middle of a war. He landed in one of the safer parts of the country. As Halaz aid workers sent back footage of their work, Jeremy looked for a way to put himself in the story. Yeah, 
not certainly not trying to put a leading narrative out there at all, right? He went outside and found a backdrop that, to the undiscerning viewer, made it look as though he was in Fallujah, in the same place where Hala's team was handing out food. He later wove that footage of himself with footage of Hala's team pretending to narrate events in real time as if he was personally there. Mind you, Jeremy never oh actually God. said he was in Fallujah, but he let you think he was. Plausible Which, deniability is preemptive love's ultimate sleight of hand. There, there might be a tiny bit of truth to that. Like, it is possible he's Jeremy's obviously good at marketing and good at selling a story like you have to be if you're in that position and you want people to believe in you. But this guy is assuming that there's malicious intent behind that and not just like that wasn't the most forefront thing on his mind is explaining now I'm 250 miles away, but let me explain what's going on. Like, is the dude thinking about that? Or is he thinking about, Hey, here's what's going on. Here's what we're doing. We, the organization, here's what we're doing. He's mad that people think that everywhere in Iraq looks the same. Like, (laughs) sorry, bro. uh, But also like if sitting in front of a wall, he's sitting in front of a tan (laughs) wall in the example photo. As if, if you, like, if, I don't, like, he painted a set. Yeah. If you, if I, anytime I've ever watched anything that's narrated, you, you're never like, oh, I assume the person who's narrating, you're narrating what they're watching. So it's going to be in real time. You're not going to be like, like, when I watch the Discovery Channel, I don't think somebody's there. Like, the narrator's actually there explaining what's happening as it's happening. Of course not. Like, I don't, it's just, it, it, and, and what's the goal? What is the goal of all of this? It's to show what's to happening in this country, to bring people in oh, and oh, show sorry, them like, Jeremy, this sorry. is what's going on right now in Fallujah. And we need to like raise awareness and raise funds so that we can do something good for these people that are going to need your help. You know, And he says, I remember the uneasy feeling I had watching the edited video. I knew I should say something. I also knew Jeremy didn't tolerate dissent well. I knew the price yeah. you could pay for questioning him. I didn't say anything. I chose like to you- believe there had to be some reasonable explanation and put it out of my mind. It's a re- decision I regret to this day. So uh, when he says uh, he doesn't tolerate dissent, it sounds like you complain a lot and he got tired of you. <laughs> <laughs> But it's just so ridiculous. Have you, it's have you so ever, ridiculous. And I don't know that this was the case for this guy, but have you ever had an employee work for you who like just never was happy with anything, no matter what? And eventually you have to draw a line of like, hey, dude, I'm I'm sorry. Like, I have to run. Like, I have to actually run stuff. I'm sorry that you're unhappy. Yeah. Like, you, you can be unhappy the over there, but me spending more time with you is not going to make you less unhappy. <laughs> so I guess you get to be unhappy. Like that's what this guy strikes me is like, yeah, if I was Jeremy doing the things that it sounds like he was responsible for and whatever, this guy sounds like he'd be really irritating to have working for you. Cause every day he's like, Hey, uh, I need to talk about some of the violence well, that you communicated in your memo. He didn't talk about it. And it's a decision he regrets oh, that's to true. this day. That's true. Yeah. Because think of that. the evil that was done. People so, might have gotten the impression that Jeremy was there when he wasn't. He was several hundred miles away. And because they may of have that, given it, money because they thought Jeremy was there. Because that's the wasn't. only way they would give money is because Jeremy was there. They don't believe in the mission otherwise. <laughs> like this guy also, like it strikes of him having very little regard for the people who support the organization. Like they can't be discerning enough to well, make some of those decisions themselves. All of these types of things do. There is like there's like a, a egocentricness to these types of complaints about people and organizations. And it's like, it's always 
framed in a light of like, you know, stupid, normal people. They could never figure this out on their own, you know, without me here to guide them, you know, and it's my yeah. duty to do so. It's the pastor syndrome. Yeah, uh, what's the, where's the white saviorism there? <laughs> you know? so, I don't know how many specific examples we want to give of Ben seemingly being. Uh, yeah, it's true. Are we, lacking, are, we, lacking, are we ganging up on him too much? Uh, I mean, probably, I, but I think I think every single one of his points as as someone who like when this story first broke i talked to my wife and was like well that fucking sucks i guess jeremy's one of those guys now i didn't just i didn't hear this and disbelieve it because i'm some jeremy lackey crony like i wasn't my i'm not beholden to him i don't outside of that one conversation i had i don't know him i don't i i want to believe he's a good person i wanted to believe that and I chose to suspend that belief for months. I assumed that this was going the way, like I assumed a lot and I just was bummed about it, but I wasn't like, I didn't suspend any critical thought because I had to believe Jeremy was above all of that. And was that, was that a decision that you regret to this very day? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to this day. But I think, so why, why I think it's worth pointing out and talking about all like, so I think all of, maybe there's one or two that could be a little bit more based, but I, I honestly sure, think there almost is. everything he says, I think there's so much that isn't genuine. There's so much that's like, that feels like gaslighting uh, as much as he doesn't like to be gaslit that I, I, I can't trust any of the ones that even would seem reasonable. Like in his newer article uh, going after humanite, like it's clear preemptive love is very clear there was no financial malfeasance and in his article criticizing humanite one of his questions and a whole list of questions he has at the end like what kind of governance will there be are the leaders subject to meaningful independent oversight all stuff he can't know and will never know because he's not part of the organization and i'm sure if he applies for a job he won't get it but in one of them he says is there financial transparency what mechanisms will be put in place to prevent executives from misusing donor money or deceptively categorizing marketing expenses as program costs in order to artificially inflate their overhead ratio dash something the Courtney's did more than once question mark. And you can click on that and get to a link to an article that he already wrote about preemptive love's financial statements that was specifically addressed by preemptive love because there is no question about how he financial how he handled the organization's financials. So it's like, why would we listen to you? Like you're well, you're yes. trying to make people think things happen that didn't, that have been directly addressed by an organization, and you still won't give that up yeah. because you didn't like how much the t-shirts cost or some dumb shit. Right, because well, he does have like that Slack message that seems kind of like maybe a little bit callous or joking from Jeremy. And like he pulls together a few different things to be like, how much did it really cost? Who was really funding it? Well, I'm assuming the investigators before they said that there was no financial malfeasance probably did look into that. And that's one of those things where you weren't entitled to that information. So yes, you can interpret some of his jokes or something as being in, in him lying or being inappropriate about it. Or it just wasn't like, maybe he just yeah. fumbled a little bit. Jeremy didn't know how to communicate some of that to his staff. And there wasn't actually anything going on. That's exactly what it seemed like to me. So the example that that pops up several times in all of this is that 
they sent out these care packages to donors, which included a T-shirt, which he goes out of his way multiple times to to describe as a expensive designer quality T-shirt. Whatever that means, God, whatever that means. It's not. It's not a Gildan with the scratchy collars, <laughs> though. You know, God forbid people get something nice to thank them for their being a part of this <laughs> this organization. Yeah. yeah, and and so like they post these Slack messages showing like the conversations between members of the team and Jeremy about the cost of this program, which is a PR program. And look. Here's the thing. I have this conversation with customers all the time about like marketing and advertising. Okay. Uh, It kind of sucks, right? Because it's hard to measure the effectiveness. I mean, in this case, it's pretty easy to tell who gave after receiving a, a thing and who didn't. But, you know, for most of the time, like for a car dealership like I work with to run radio ads or put ads in the local paper. Like it's very hard to track your return on investment. And it's a, it's something that everybody is apprehensive to do, but everybody knows you have to do something. You have to try to bring in new customers because there's attrition no matter what you do. Right. And that's kind of the, the argument made by Jeremy in this Slack post is that like, Hey, um, we have to invest in the future. He specifically says that like, relying on media coverage of tragedies is not a business plan or a strategic model. We have to like proactively try to reach out to people and keep, you know, it's a leaky bucket that we're trying to keep our, and we're trying to keep donors over long periods of time. Right. So they tried something new. They tried this care package thing for their donors. Uh, It sounds like it went over budget. Uh, it was originally like projected to be like $150,000 or $165,000. And it wound up being like 230, I think. Uh, I think it was 208, they said. And so members of this like PR marketing team are asking like, hey, if people complain about the cost of these shirts or more, more specifically, like, Hey, what do we tell people if they complain about the fact that we're sending out gifts to donors? Like if they don't like that, we're spending money on that and not on programming and stuff. And so like, I don't, it's so wild to think that someone might complain about that. Somebody I'm sure does, but like none of those customer, like none of those donor complaints are really listed anywhere in any of these articles. It's all just like people asking like, what if, what if someone complains, what do I tell them? And he gives them a line. Now it sounds to me like this is one of those situations where there's just not a good clear cut corporate policy on how to handle those expenses and how to like, represent them to donors if they do have questions about them. Yeah. So if I could also weigh in there for nonprofit experience, there is some fuzziness with the way a lot of nonprofits do handle classifying their program expenses and everything for communication to people, because some people do get fussy about it. Mm -hmm. The thing that rang very true was when he's talking about who is this mysterious donor. There were multiple times where the mysterious donor, like at the organization I worked at that was matching donations at a dinner or something was one of the board members or something where it was like a, they just wanted to stay out of it. And yes, there are nonprofits, not the one that I worked for, but there are nonprofits that would do some funny stuff where like they have two different organizations and they would match money from one to another 
And then they would use this one to match money to another. That happens all the time in politics with political nonprofits. So you can kind of keep the shell game going as a way to drive donations. Is it dishonest? Yeah, I think it is. But like, is it illegal? No. Um, And you're not technically lying to anybody. You're just, you're misrepresenting. I mean, it's, I think it's one of those things that's unethical. Corporate games. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, But it's like, but that is something that happens. And it's very possible depending on what uh, fundraising advice or what school of nonprofit fundraising he was from. It's very likely or very possible he could have been following some of that device or advice because the nonprofit world, like I can just tell when I get a form letter from nonprofits of like, oh, you guys went to the same school of thought as the person who wrote our form letters at the place that I worked at of like, you can tell where they're getting their stuff from once you're used to it. And it could have just very easily been one of those things. Like they, this is their advice they got. Hey, when you're doing matched gift donations, you say it's from a blah, blah, blah. And you actually shuffled money around this way, or you get one of your donors who gives you a hundred thousand every year and you get them to sign up ahead of time of great. Can we take 50 of that and set it aside to be a match donation for people for this particular campaign to try to drive donations up in it? Is it like, are you telling the truth? Yes. Is it a little bit dishonest? Potentially, depending on which way you look at it. Like it's a little, yeah, it's a little bit fuzzy. It is, it is, but it's that's very common in the nonprofit world. So I'm not saying that to excuse Jeremy, but like that's one part of what this guy Ben is saying that that it may may very well be true. Whether or not you like that's, it, it's very common in nonprofits because you're trying, you're using marketing tricks to get people to give. It's like it's basically the same technique as donations are on sale today. People love yeah. sales, whether they're real or they're made up and stores price that in. It's the same exact thing. Is Ben say that's what Ben said they were doing in the, he, in his he said he didn't like how they were the way they talked about the, the mysterious donor, who that mysterious donor was, where did that okay. money actually come from that side of things? And it doesn't mean anything was wrong. It means he just doesn't have info about that. And Jeremy wasn't telling him I'm saying that sounds very familiar to plenty of fundraising situations I've seen firsthand of like, I would have no problem believing that they, that's what they were doing is just parking someone's regular yearly donation to the side as a match or repurposing it for this or whatever, where it's not like, there's nothing illegal. There's nothing that a board of directors who actually understands how stuff works would like have a problem with, but people who don't understand it or understand it and have ethical problems with it, which I think would be fair. You would look at it and go, Oh, that feels slimy. Mm-hmm. That doesn't feel okay. right. I gotcha. That could be a valid feeling, but it like, it doesn't mean he was committing a crime. Well, Okay, and so here's another like financial issue that's brought up, okay, and, and a misstep on Jeremy's part. So it says, early in the COVID-19 pandemic, Jeremy announced he would forego his $165,000 a year salary to avoid any cuts to programming our staff, which that's continually put out there. It's like, he makes $165,000 a year. It's like, well, he so? lives in Iraq, and he runs a team of 150 people, and... That's yeah. really not we, that much Working money for a nonprofit doesn't mean you have to live in poverty. It, this is a common misconception about, I mean, I feel like I'm really just ranting about nonprofits tonight, but like <laughs> if you want to have really good, talented people, nonprofit doesn't mean they're all working for $30,000 a year. You have to hire good people. And How probably, much is a person going to cost that replaces him? Right. And probably his salary yeah. is set by the board. And if the board has yeah. ethics, they have a financial advisory component of the board that looks at market rates for nonprofits, for people who are a director or a CEO at that level. And it's probably is within a certain range and they apply like a cost of living calculation and they decide that's what he gets paid. That's how that stuff works. So if you don't like it, fine. But just because you weren't getting paid, that doesn't mean he's not worth it. And it's specifically put out there over and over again for that reason is like 165. Can you believe that this is supposed to be a charity? Which 
whatever. I mean, their their financial records are public domain, right? It's a nonprofit, right. so I mean that it, it's out there for public consumption. Anyways, he said uh, he would forego his $165,000 a year salary to avoid any cuts to programming or staff. Uh, he quietly reinstated his pay three months later. Now, that was a misstep. That okay? does sound like that's a marketing technique thing that like, well, whether he was advised on it or he read about it, that feels like, oh, you do that and it makes people feel good and then you just undo it later or something. like. Dude, in, in March of the of 2020 when the pandemic was growing legs nobody knew what was going to happen i mean dude they we we put our sales guys on like a a tiered guarantee and like all we did like everybody was doing all these steps to make sure that you know if this was going to last you know a year where people couldn't go to work at all and stuff like that then you know you took this up now reinstating his pay I mean, I understand why he did it. I want to make money too, but that wasn't a very wise decision from a, a public relations standpoint. It also says preemptive love took $494,400 PPP loans in 2020, which it had forgiven several months later, despite being well on its way to its best fundraising year ever. I feel like this P- PPP loan thing is... It just reminds me of the meme of the two Spider-Mans pointing at each other. Yeah. <laughs> it's literally like, how would you, okay, publicly or non, public or non-public company, how do you go to the people that you're responsible to, you know, that, that, that hold you accountable and say, we got offered several hundred thousand dollars or, or several million dollars in PPP loans, but we chose to forgo those, or we decided to pay them back, even we, though we, we decided to we decided to risk it because uh, we think we're going to survive just fine without them. Let's see what happens. Like, yeah, yeah we everyone would be we like, just Wait. drain our entire bank account in yeah. the name of not taking a loan, like that did, that you and you originally believed you were going to pay back. Well, some of those some happen. of those companies that took those PPP well, loans. I don't think sure. they ever had any intention. But that's <laughs> a, okay. Okay. I mean, we can't yeah, we can't lump point. that on 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 preemptive love. Now, Casey, what you were saying before about him reinstating his salary? Do you think it was something where like he froze it, and then things actually turned out not to be as grim as they thought they would be? So they're like, oh, that's not really necessary, and I, we have the PPP loans, so we're good. We can just we I can think go back that's what happened. And they just did a poor job of communicating it. Yeah. And I think it was a misstep for him. I mean, maybe he explained that he was, but I, I kind of doubt it. I bet you it was a quiet move. And you know, from your, from the standpoint of your team, that doesn't look good. You know, is it illegal? No, but I mean, maybe if there was a better explanation of what he was doing, like, Hey guys, things seem fine. And, uh, you know, I got bills to pay. Yeah, I think well, I'm like, going to salary. I think right. they're better than we thought, and I actually get to get paid just like you people. Do you like getting paid? <laughs> so do I. Like, but I'm not. I'm not trying to be overly defensive. I don't want to come off come off as just like a full blown apologist because I know we've done a lot of dunking on the articles that Ben wrote. But I, so I, I hear you, Casey. I mean, it does feel like not addressing that in any way with your team is a misstep well to, we know that he didn't address it with, from your company but what jeremiah sorry do we sorry yeah i interrupted do we know that he didn't address it with his team or did he just not address it with that we guy? Don't. like did the board the people in charge of like his salary maybe they were like hey actually we're doing fine on financials like appreciate it but you know take your paycheck back we're good well i doubt like, it was his decision personally to reinstate his own salary 
maybe it was, maybe it wasn't, but like, I, I agree. I, I think it would be surprising if no one else had any input into that. Yeah. Can we, okay. So maybe at this point we should move on to a couple of incidents that are brought up by both Ben and, uh, Courtney Christensen. Um, yeah. Race and, and gender relations and issues. Um, I'm assuming you guys both read the portions that deal with this. So there was, mm-hmm. there was two main examples that were given for, you know, to show the Courtney's, you know, their, I guess, primitive views of race and gender issues specifically in the U S and, uh, this is another one of those things that just has this weird air of like egocentrism. Uh, I mean, uh, Courtney Christensen, one point in her articles said, you know, I, I'll find the quote, but she said basically that like, uh, oh yeah, having lived outside the U.S. for so long, it had been 13 years in 2017, your understanding of race and other American social issues was behind. You'd missed a lot. It's a little, and, a little condescending. Yeah, it's like, you know, <laughs> you haven't been back the... to the cultural hub of the entire world. Right. You know, enough oh, you're too to busy understand. in Syria. You're too busy in Iraq to understand what's been going on with race for the past 13 years. Like, all right, back it down just a little bit. <laughs> so the the two of the examples that are brought up by both people are one. The first one was in the immediate wake of the George Floyd murder. Um, So they published a video of a zoom call or, you know, some sort of a conference call with their staff in which uh, Jeremy is speaking and he's talking to the group about what had happened. It had just happened, the George Floyd murder. And on the call, he said, uh, you know, I want to, I want us to just take a moment to really think about like the gravity of the situation and what happened and like the violence of this, you know, this murder. Uh, he said, I, I, why, you know, why doesn't everybody just turn off your webcam? So you've got some privacy. He said, I just want you to take a, f- a few minutes here to think about, you know, that what it had, what happened and, you know, think about like how long, you know, these couple of minutes seem and how long that officer stood on George Floyd's neck. And, and it, to me, like I was listening to it and I was thinking like, well, this seems like quite a, you know, it seems like he was really trying to contextualize and put a good conversation out there about what had happened and what their reaction to it should be. And it seemed like he was really trying to pay respect to the gravity of the situation and to George Floyd in like calling the employees to meditate on what had happened. And Ben and, and uh, Courtney both take issue with this saying that like, he didn't consider the feelings of the people of color on our team and how traumatic it might be for them to, to contemplate the situation. Like that's not what we're doing by being on this call in the first place. Like, yeah, did, did, did did they say, and I don't remember from reading them, did any people of color on the teams express a concern about it? Or is it just this, them getting offended ahead of time for people who 
don't say whether or not they're actually offended by the thing that happened. I don't, I don't know. There's no specific like examples given of complaints okay. from those employees. They might've, you know, they, they might've. They might have, but like, let's be honest, there is nothing like certain white people love nothing more than getting offended on behalf of other people groups. Like they'll do all the offense work for you, whether or not you're actually offended, they're here for you because they're a real ally. <laughs> Is that yeah. white saviorism? Uh, yeah, I think it is actually. <laughs> is that is textbook uh, definition of it? No, no, I know it, another aspect of it was like the moment of silence for the whatever, however, how long I forget how long it's like seven and a half minutes, seven nine minutes, minutes. 42 seconds. What seven minutes, 42 seconds, seven minutes, 42 seconds. And I don't know if they took any issue with that, but I went to a couple of BLM protests over that summer where that was like, that was pretty normal to be like, we're going to all sit in silence for seven minutes and 42 seconds or whatever it was to, and it's, it's what to sit there in silence with a group of people for that long. It feels like a lifetime and it's not, uh, I think the criticism of Jeremy for doing that, for initiating something like that and having that conversation and, because he's white and that that's how people how people might feel during that people were doing that like that wasn't a jeremy idea that was something that was happening across the u.s people were taking those moments of silence as a group maybe they could have had somebody else run it maybe they could have done maybe but then they could be criticized for the figureheads of the organization not speaking out against us because they don't really care like this is one of those no-win situations of like maybe he did fumble it a little bit and it, maybe like, it wasn't that, a lewd situation. Maybe really no one else. Like we just have the idea from these two that did you even consider how this might make other people feel? It's maybe like, he did. Do we know and, how it made other people and feel? And he was trying to imperfectly lead in the moment because he's their leader. And he, it, this isn't something that had anything to do with his organization, yeah. but still, if he's expected to speak on it or, or he's trying to lead his people through a difficult time, like, yeah, maybe he fumbled it a little bit, but is it really that bad? I just don't understand it's, like what would be the right response. Like what would be the right way to address it? And like, how does anybody, how is anybody supposed to know those things? And like, that doesn't mean that you can't criticize it if it's wrong, you know, if it didn't feel right, or if you, if someone was upset about the way that it was handled, but like to, to paint it as like, obviously this guy, his cultural understandings of racism and stuff are just backwards. This troglodyte, you know, yeah, it just seems so ridiculous. Now, yeah. there's one more example that's uh, it's a little tougher to talk about. Um, okay. So there was a discussion on um, violence against Asian Americans, and uh, a recording from a call was posted in which Jeremy is talking about uh, the Stop Asian Hate uh, movement in the U.S. when that was really, you know, moving strong and he i don't want to mischaracterize this but he he said something to effect of like whiteness i'm looking looking for the quote has become a scapegoat for everything that happens and like you know the the asian americans that i talk to in the u.s you know have said that like they're experiencing violence at the hand of black and brown people and there's no way for them to really talk about it or have a discussion about it because, you know, they're a, they're a protected class right now. It was, it was rough. It was a rough comment. 
is one that I've heard elsewhere. Hmm. It didn't, it didn't sound good. And I could, you know, it's understandable for people to be offended by that discussion. I would like to know what was said before that, because we have like the four minute excerpt from the call. I would like to know what that was in response to, but regardless, it's not a statement I would have made. No, it's all to my team. Yeah. It's one of those things where if you feel like you're, you know, safe, you're with your people on your team and you're talking candidly, I think everyone is more likely to say stuff that's not exactly formatted for public consumption. Not because you like, you believe something different that you say publicly, but like you're going to be more conscious of explaining your heart or your intent behind something versus when you're talking to people who you believe already know you and understand the context in which you're framing something. You don't feel like you have to be that guarded because they already know your character. That said, I agree with you, Casey. I think context could help. It does feel like a statement that would be out of place in most contexts, though. Or or if we're being kind, like maybe would be ignorant in many contexts. So like giving him some benefit of the doubt without knowing exactly what was said, I guess we can't know. But yeah, I would have a hard time understanding the context in which that makes sense and isn't just wrong to some degree. Yeah. Yeah. I don't feel like I haven't said anything, so I don't want to just sit here and be silent on it, I guess, but I don't feel like I have a lot to add to that. Um, well, Sam thinks all that's true. It doesn't read or say, it doesn't read well. Uh, and that, so that was, that was on a conference call with the team and that's what, so and then that was a recorded aspect of it. Yeah. Yeah. So audio that, from that call was, was published. There like four minutes of it. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's doesn't sound good. I, yeah, because I guess if you're trying to if you're trying to understand uh, instead of just pile on, I mean, it does this sounds like a valid criticism? I don't know how you would really, yeah, without it's hard to tease this one out, certainly. But I guess if you were trying to and you're trying to understand Jeremy's perspective um, and why he said it and what the context was. I guess knowing what had been said before could be helpful. Like what, what was he trying to address? Like why? It sounds from what you're saying, case that he's trying to figure out like that. There was some call to, to address this issue. uh, The stop Asian hate movement and to have a participate that participate in that conversation as like a company or have some sort of statement made about it. Was that what people were expecting? I think that was the like the backdrop of it is so that's where kind of like it. I think it makes sense to talk a little bit about Courtney Christensen's blog post. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's called sparksandmatches.com is where it's posted. And it's kind of like a diary of her basically like the ways in which her ideology conflicted with that of the core the direction of preemptive love mm-hmm. um from everything it sounds like in 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 her article here it sounds like she was really committed to being involved in local things that are going on so she was very intent on pushing the company to get involved in like u.s domestic cultural disputes and, and, gotcha. you know, racism and, uh, you know, gay and trans issues and that kind of stuff. And 
it seems to me like the organization did not view that as their primary goal as a company. Yeah. I mean, they were, you know, they were focused on their overseas work and, you know, she and a group of the, you know, employees that are in the United States were really intent on, on using, you know, the company platform and funds to get involved in like the U S cultural issues and stuff that are going on. Uh, she is the one Which that there's calls complications with that. Um, not to drift away from the original thing that you brought up and what he said regarding the stop Asian hate stuff, but there is a good reason to avoid getting involved in certain political, uh, not pol- I don't want to say it's political, but it is part of our culture war here. And when your organization is focused on what's going on over there and raising money to, to help what's going on over there to get involved in that over here definitely has potential financial ramifications too. Yeah. And there's, there's like a lot in this article that points to like a, you know, the inflexible nature of, of her and, and I'm assuming like their team here's ideology on some of those things. So you know, at, at one point, as like I already said, she said, having lived outside the U.S. for so long, your understanding of race and other American social issues was dot, dot, dot behind. You'd missed a lot. In addition, as you, dis- as you discuss in your books, Jeremy, your understanding of culture when you did live here was largely informed by conservative white evangelicalism. When we began to discuss these things internally, it quickly became clear that there are pieces of your cultural understanding that needed to be reexamined especially when it came to gender and race and like over and over again, it really like becomes evident that re-examining your understandings of gender and race and, and any of the other things, it, it really comes down to like, you need to get on board with my ideas about this. Like mm-hmm. we're in the right here and you're in the wrong. And, you know, it seemed like they were really intent on just staying neutral on those issues. And these people like, then or that's, just not involved, abstaining from those issues because for whatever reason. Yeah. What is what is that saying uh, in the Twitterverse? It's like silence is complicity. Silence is violence. Oh, um, but yes, sil- silence is complicity. I've heard variations of that. So it says, oh, here's uh, the examples. Neutrality, neutrality favors the oppressor. Is that the one you're thinking of? Yeah. Well, all of those, all of those. <laughs> Okay, it says, this was evident when you reprimanded me for an article I wrote in response to the Charlottesville riots, saying the angry tone, quote, I took with the white supremacist didn't reflect our commitment to love anyway. And she links to this article here, which is still up on Preemptive Love's website. And it does seem to really not jive well with the overall goals and, and vision of the, of the organization. I mean, it's, Mm -hmm. it's a lot of like, what is, it's called, uh, what love anyway does and does not mean after Charlottesville. Okay. So this is in the wake of the, you know, the Charlottesville Nazi demonstration where, uh, the white supremacist ran over a woman with his car. Uh, it says, um, what does it look like to love anyway when people are marching through Charlottesville with Nazi flags? And should we even love anyway? This idea is more comfortably applied at a distance and much easier to apply to other people, but it applies all the time to everyone. That's the radical thing about it. However, it does not mean we have to be cool with everyone, quote, quote. 
So let's break down what love anyway does mean to the situation where Klansmen wield torches and a white supremacist mows down 30 something woman with his car in, in an act of terror. Um, love anyway does not mean we tolerate white supremacy or make any room for it in our society. It does not mean that the oppressor and the oppressed should be treated as two sides of the same coin. I'm skipping through a little bit here. It does not mean we sacrifice the well-being of people of color, uh, in especially children of color who are watching our response to these events in order to make peace. So, you know, there again, there's like continued calls to like, what's important is what we say on this stuff. Like our public statement is what's important and it, it has to be there, right? It does not mean we should all just try to get along or appease racist groups in order to avoid conflict. It does not mean that we ignore these groups or allow them to exist unchallenged. We cannot accept ideologies that seek the destruction of others. It does not mean that those who perpetuate evil in the name of white supremacy should avoid dire legal consequences for their action. Um, there's a lot in here about what it does and doesn't mean. There's a couple of lines here that stuck out that I thought, yeah, I could see where this would be something that they would say. I wish we could have reviewed that a little bit. Um, it says, it means we respect the humanity of the people in these groups by refusing to injure or kill or dehumanize them, even though they don't show the same respect to others. And I, that's a, that's just, I don't know. I mean, like the ideas there are are good. I think most people agree with them, you know, but like I it's just the 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 way that all of them are framed and said, it's just got this like you can see why they would have said, "Hey, I don't know that this really aligns with the message that we're trying to put out here or that you know, this is the stance that we want to take on this really like important sensitive issue." Um, right. It's easy to misinterpret. Like even if uh, the Courtney's agreed with a lot of that and I'm not putting thoughts in their minds or words in their mouth, but like, I, I agree with you. Like that that's, it's got a lot of raw edges on some of that stuff. She's saying that sounds like it's written from an emotional place. And I would be worried of like, it would be too easy to have people twist and mis misinterpret some of those statements against the organization in the future. That feels like that needed a, a third party editor pass to just make sure all of that's in alignment with how you present your other stuff. Which is standard in most organizations. Most organizations, it's in not one person's job ones. to put out, what's that? In controlling gaslighting organizations run by <laughs> dictator despots, maybe. Like most organizations, especially large ones, you know, it's not one person gets to decide on messaging and stuff like that for the company. Like it, it's run through things like articles and blog posts and statements aren't posted without several sets of eyes on them to make sure that they align with what the organization's trying to do. And there's just a lot of things here that, that like show that they just had conflicting viewpoints on a lot of like what the company should be doing says it was evident when Jessica told me that I needed to rework the curriculum I wrote for preemptive love gatherings because she was afraid it would make white people uncomfortable and she wanted to make sure gatherings were a quote safe space for white people which w without seeing what she wrote which it doesn't look like she shares that curriculum there we can't weigh in on that one way or the other like it could be another situation where she's not technically wrong about anything it's just written in a raw enough or rough enough way that they felt like, eh, this isn't, this doesn't reflect how we want to communicate. 
Here's one. It was evident in a March 2018 Zoom call when both of you shouted at the team and Jessica cried toxic white woman tears because someone called her out of her back for her backward understanding of race and gender dynamics. It was further evident in the same Zoom call when you, Jeremy, loudly questioned my commitment to feminism because I wasn't standing up for Jessica while she was crying. That sounds like the retort of a guy trying to defend his wife, which maybe is a maybe doesn't that statement doesn't land super well but like that also sounds like yeah i can kind of understand you know if my wife was crying because someone was loudly disagreeing with her i might say some not incredibly kind things in response to just because like i'm defending her toxic you know? white woman yeah, tears is the, I, the phrase is there a, that that's I'm a just... rough that's a rough phrase i feel like when you're dealing with stuff like this i mean these those are conversations that come up uh like what is because what is it i don't know i just it's i i i i get why he was throwing out a buzzword to combat a buzzword right still, um, still not a smart thing to say but like also it sounds like one of those things which heard in context uh, you could understand the emotion behind it and yeah maybe it's where it's one of those like well everyone screwed up a little bit here today let's take a minute you know take a beat calm down yeah it sounds like it got heated on the conference call yeah People are crying. Does that make him a monster? I don't know. It feels feels a little strong. But there's just so much of this stuff here that's like they don't agree with my view on this, and obviously yeah, my we view don't is know correct. The view, but that's like what, that's true. That's we don't know the view on any of it, and I think that's what makes this really complicated. Is like and and does having so say it's true. Say they don't have a 2022 understanding of these issues. Does that mean your your toxic work environment and that you are no longer capable of fulfilling your duties as a CEO? And I feel like that's what's so frustrating about the way all these articles are written. It's just like it's character assassination and nothing more. Like it does this does you do being wrong about something like that and needing to evolve mean you can't run your organization that's not directly involved in that kind of work. Like if he was directly right. involved in that kind of work and he had a backwards or outdated understanding or needed to evolve and in space needed to be given to him to do that. I would, I sure. Like if that's what, if his mission was based on trying to serve black and brown populations in the United States and he was wrong about if he was wrong about how he viewed certain things. Yeah. That would be a problem, but that's not his, his invest, the, the investment of preemptive love in the United States is to take our money. And that's bluntly put, but they're raising money here in the United States to put it over there to save people's lives. And I don't know. I, it's, I know companies are often forced into, especially nonprofits are forced into having to have conversations that might even be outside their wheelhouse. There's an expectation placed on them as a humanitarian organization that they should be actively involved in everything. But the reason, I mean, you can only spread yourself so thin uh, and you don't have to be everything to all people as an organization. So I think that's without knowing what her views are, without knowing what the Courtney's views are in just stating that they're wrong and backwards and that that is part of why that they should like why they shouldn't be able to run an organization that they founded to not address that has literally nothing to do with addressing these problems in the United States 
is like you can get swept up in the article and the way that it's written and oh now you've built this you've built you've painted this picture of the courtney's not being good people or not being the kinds of people you would want to run the organization you're funding and it really has no bearing on the organization in some respects and based on the hearsay without any actual understanding of what anyone believes in this conversation it's like that's what's exhausting about it. Like you're just, it's like you actually, you, by the time you read it and you think about it, you're like, I read nothing. There's no substance. There's serious allegations and there's g- sweeping generalizations about how people are wrong about things because they didn't agree with you and they made you feel bad. And when you called them out on it, they didn't respond the right way, but we don't have the content. Well, and like a lot of the rest of this, is really just like a details, I mean, vague details of a dispute between her and the Courtney's who obviously did not like each other. I mean, it's clear for like, if this stuff is clear, they didn't get along. They did not jive well. And because of that, they completely, they re- re- like routinely <laughs> butted heads on things because, you know, she talks about like, she was upset that they made that they wanted to read everything she wrote before it was published and then it never improved any of it no matter how benign uh it wasn't even when you told me my efforts to be a peacemaker in my local community were nothing more than attention seeking and then she goes into this last example here where it says the last straw for me was a voice message from jessica explaining that you don't really believe that anyone can be a peacemaker on the front lines where they live because you sent this message in the in the summer of 2018 after I suggested that we partner with a local organization near my home in Oregon that was helping separated immigrant families being held at a nearby detention center. I had connections there. Partnering with them aligned with Preemptive Love's commitment to building up local organizations rather than our own. But you told me that despite the fact that immigrant families were being actively were actively being held here. Oregon was too far removed from the issue. So basically, like, I had an idea that worked for me and my friends that I had over in this other organization, and I wanted to take company resources and put them towards this. And they said no, right? You told me that preemptive love said anyone could be a peacemaker on the front lines where they live. That's not actually true. You said I could never be a real peacemaker while I lived in Oregon because to be a real peacemaker, I had to be in the red hot center of the conflict, meaning in the media spotlight. Then you said the two of you had decided the only way I could prove myself as a peacemaker and as a preemptive love employee was to immediately uproot my family and move to the Arizona-Mexico border to address family separations there. Despite the fact that I had no connections there, I speak very little Spanish. I had no intimate knowledge of the issue beyond what I read in the news, and I had no meaningful way to make a difference there. This aligned with your value of going where the news coverage was, quote, which you had announced to our staff summit a few months prior, but it wouldn't have helped anyone in need. It was an absurd proposition and would have been the worst form of white saviorism. It's also exactly what you guys did 13 years ago when you moved to Iraq in the middle of a war. Well, a few differences. Uh, she's griping about the suggestion, which we don't know the context behind the suggestion, but their suggestion is she moved to another U.S. state that would be, you know, 10 hours drive away from where she lives. And she's flustered about that. That's a little maybe that should give her a little more understanding for them moving to another country that is actively at war. I feel like those things are different. 
everything they did was white saviorism. Like, she literally just wrote off their entire 13 years worth of work in these, like, other countries helping, you know, save lives, do all of that stuff as, like, this was white saviorism, this was all about you guys. And literally, like, everything in this paragraph is about, like, well, how am I supposed to do something for, you know, that that touches me and that I can feel good about? It's just, yeah, like, there's it's, so many... It, it, I, don't know I want to work with this local organization and I want you to send your resources here for me to be, it's like, if look, why don't you like you start there, you volunteer there. Like what, what you do it, do the work. And it's, and, but like, just to say, like I had friends there, I can imagine a conversation going something. And this is of course wild speculation, but I also know how people work to some degree and I can imagine the, the job of the people in that center being difficult. And I can imagine wanting more resources. Sure. And I can imagine them being like, I work for preemptive love. There's, we're an organization that specializes in this. I should reach out to, I have a direct line of communication with the CEO, which also isn't always a helpful thing for CEOs to have direct lines of communication with their employees. Right. Um, and maybe we can partner. That'd be great. And you just build it up and it's like, but like there has to be a discrimination. If every employee has an organization that they think is a good place to send money to, like that just, that's not how nonprofits work. You don't get to work for an organization or a nonprofit and just say, because I think we should be involved in this, that that's, that's the green light. I mean, even in retail and business, it's like, I work for a retail company. I have a friend. We sell, our retail company sells small vendor product. I have a friend that does small vendor stuff. I reached out to the buyer who I know from working there for a number of years, who would handle that product. And I was like, I, I really don't want to be too forward. I just, I, I don't want to know anything about where this goes after the fact. I just, I know this person and I think their product is good. I think their brand and the marketing works with a lot of our locations in this area. Uh, here's the contact information. Maybe you would want to try it, do a test order. Maybe not. Whatever happens from this point on is not my business. I gave it to them and I walked away and I don't know what's happened since. Uh, I don't know if they ever reached out. I know that they didn't reach out, but I don't know if they I, and that's fine. Like, I'm not like, this is a great opportunity for us. I should write a blog post about how you didn't want to right. invest. You're giving in the in. You're giving the in, but you're trying to stay within the lines of what's appropriate given the different business and personal relationships. It, to me, it sounds like, and this is also wild speculation, that she was in, interested in this for all the reasons you said, you guys have both said, and they explained why, no, they don't think this fits with what they want to do. And they explained some more information as to why and tried to like illustrate that to her a little bit, like giving her analogy of, you know, this doesn't fit with our mission of how we try to do these things. We would do something more akin to blah, 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 blah. And it sounds like she interpreted it as that, that as them telling her like, no, you have to move to Arizona, which to me, that sounds like just them trying to use an analogy or an allegory to explain why they wanted to do or not do something. Well, and it could also be that like, these people did not like each other anymore. They did not like working together. Very possible. They yeah. got an email that said it was from her. They were like, oh, God, now what? You know? 
and she equally didn't like them. And this might have been a, another situation where, you know, maybe some sort of corporate structure, uh, a mediary, someone in between her and the Courtney's would have been a good idea. Yeah. But, uh, Which sounds like they were already in the process of that six month plan. but like i don't know that's just there's so much of that type of stuff in these articles and i another thing that like the last thing is too that i think is ironic and it just shows like the the fundamental disconnect with you know how people think and how an organization runs is like the contempt that they seem to have for donors over and over you know there's like several examples where they're like well, they didn't want to offend donors or a donor complained and a, they made someone take down a social media post and this and that and the other. And I, I don't know, maybe it's working in sales and in a, in a, you know, for-profit situation for too long, but like you only win if you get the money. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it, it might feel good to, to like forward. spit in somebody's face, like a customer's face, when they're being rude to you. And like sometimes, I don't know, that's just what happens, right? But that's not a win. You don't win unless you can get that. You take their money and you put it into something good. Right. And right. Every hill is worth that, dying on. Yeah. yeah. And sometimes to do that, you have to, you know, fall on a sword or, or, grin and bear it or whatever the case may be. But like, I don't know this idea that like, you know, they just cave to, you know, the whims of donors who got offended about this or upset about that. I, I don't know. It's just, I think, I think final thoughts on this whole situation is um, I think this just has echoes. A lot of this, I mean, there's obviously there's like real issues here that were brought up that required action and stuff like that. But the extent to which, you know, the Courtney's felt the blow does not seem by any of the examples given, it does not seem to be appropriate or a measured response to the complaints. I think and the and the complaint, the public complaints here between Ben and Courtney really have like the the air of like disgruntled ex-employee that didn't like how the organization was run, didn't like the management, didn't like this, didn't like that. And sometimes for good reason, but you know, in most cases you just go find another job. You know, you find some place that has a better working conditions or has a goal or a mission that more aligns with what you want to do or your values or whatever. In this case though, you know, they, they drug this entire organization through the mud and the end result was that these people lost the very organization that they had founded that had done such big things over such a long period of time. Like it's, it's, it was taken from them and they're fine and they're going to do okay, but it doesn't make it any less gross. Um, yeah, it, it was done under all, I mean, really it, it wasn't the people who signed the letter and some of the people who signed the letter didn't want to actually go through the investigative process. It was just, it was preemptive love was moving in a direction. Ben Irwin published an article on medium that required a more measured response from preemptive love for two weeks ish. They dealt with terrible PR, uh, some, a shit storm of, of, uh, just comments and 
on social media uh, and that it just spread like wildfire. And like for the amount of people who have concerns or think that they're, they're like that he's a real whistleblower. It's like, there's just not, there's two people publishing. I mean, ultimately Ben Irwin mostly. And then Courtney shared some of her perspectives and opinions. And it's like that was published. And then it were, and then the response was the Courtney's are no longer going to move forward with preemptive love. And you're like, you won, dude, you won. You wrote a shit piece on people. You like, it was just a character assassination piece where you got to smear their name and area grievances uh, because you probably didn't like the resolution that was about to come forward, which was that they were going to actively work on fixing this after swiftly responding to the complaints. And, and you, you published an article that you hoped would ultimately get them fired and it did. And now that they did your, your, your attempt is to, kind of blackballed them from ever doing meaningful work in this world again yeah. which is so strange yeah, imperfect people can't do good you know and that which is the most ridiculous thing in the world and like i think that the courtney's have had a they've been they've responded pretty gracefully to everything that's happened they've given these people space to say what they want to say even though they didn't agree with it and and just the fact that they don't agree with their assessment of it is is offensive enough to warrant like trying to sink their new organization, which, you know, <clears throat> you can, you can make speculations about how like, well, the Courtney's are going to be running it still, but behind the scenes, but like by all accounts, it looks like they're not in the driver's seat of this new organization. So you can cry white saviorism all you want and talk about how horrible they are, but it looks to me like, you know, people from Iraq and from these communities overseas that have been through wars and everything else, which, you know, maybe you describe as the Courtney's cult members, you know, that's not demeaning at all, but it looks to me like they're running this new organization. And the fact that you didn't even let it get off the ground before you start trashing it and trying to undermine it, I think is just disgusting. I think you should grow up and I think you should find something reasonable and, 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 rational and worthwhile to get into you know i mean or you can just keep tweeting 50 times a day you know i, I guess maybe this detracts from the real work that you're doing of retweeting of hot people. takes on twitter yeah yeah like yeah i i mean maybe we didn't pay enough respect to the fact that like you know you're doing the real work out there of tweeting like, I think you I, ought to be ashamed of yourself, man. I really do. I mean, and I, it just, it makes me angry. Like this whole thing just makes me angry when I look at it because like a more measured response that called out some actual problems, like I can see, I mean, same situation we've seen so many times with other organizations, like you said, where, you know, like you're almost preconditioned to believe that like, oh, it turns out so-and-so who I thought was cool is actually a you know a con artist like we've seen that play out so many times that you're almost kind of like ready to hear the bad news about someone that you thought was good you know but in this case like it's just fluff it's fluff you know with a couple of real accusations built in there and i just think like the extent to which you've like gone after the courtney's and now after their new organization they're not even running themselves like it's just, it's disgusting. 
I think it's also noteworthy. I know we're trying to wrap down here, but throughout the whole thing, they never really any substantive way attack the actual work that preemptive love was doing because I'm guessing the work was actually good. And the thing that keeps ringing around in my head, like this whole time we've been talking, I I almost hate to bring it up because I feel like it's one of those quotes that has just been beaten to death by grifters and con men and idiots. But you're familiar with like uh, Teddy Roosevelt's the man in the arena quote. Okay. Uh, Do you mind if I read it, Sam? Read it. Uh, It's what I just keep thinking of while we're talking about this. He said, it is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who's actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming. But who does actually strive to do the deeds who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while, while daring greatly so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who n- neither know victory nor defeat. And I think that's a great way to wrap that up. <laughs> like, I thought me, Andrew Tate like... said that. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry for the for the the camel wheeze you're gonna have to edit out. There. But like, not 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 that this is like a direct fit for the situation. But that's what keeps going around in my head is like, throughout all of this, it sounds like they don't have anything they can attack about the work in the organization. And to me, that speaks to the founders. Is what, even for all of their potential missteps, which we may never fully understand. And I think it sounded like Jeremy even admitted on the podcast, he probably was not the perfect leader or perfectly suited for that type of leadership. It sounds like they were doing the work. And I, any critique absent of an acknowledgement of the good that they've done feels like it's hollow because it does seem from the you know medium research I've done so far that the organization is a good, it is one of the organizations that you wanted to, at least historically wanted to support with your money that was making a meaningful difference that wasn't wasting it. That was actually moving the needle forward. And maybe yeah. it was undone by these Twitter hot takers, just looking to get their pound of flesh. Well, and I mean, what good is for kids to get heart surgery if employees are being gaslit in the U S <laughs> and they can't, it's and like, they can't post the like... blog articles that they want. All right. Oh, we can't, we can't get back into it guys. We can't, we can't. forever. Yeah. All right, whatever. I'll save any response to that. Jeremiah, great quote. Uh, Thanks, I wrote if it. You... Yeah. <laughs> no, I... <laughs> I just appreciate your reading ability. Uh, you did a great job reading that. So thank, thank, thank you, Sam. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Uh, okay. Well, I just close <laughs> this guy. Yeah. This. Uh, no this one's joining the rails a couple of times. Week, so just. <laughs> I'm. I'm sure that. Uh, that there's some people listening who disagree heartily if you want to talk about it or if you want to just call us names or whatever, uh, join our discord. If you're going to call us names, put a time limit on it at least, you know, like join for a few days chew us out and then leave. But, uh, you want to hop in on the conversation. You want to weigh in on what happened either way. That's probably the best way to, uh, to get at us. So, Find a link in our social media. And if you're enjoying the podcast, uh, review it wherever you listen to it. So until next time, uh, thanks for listening. And we will see you later.